if you happen to be unfamiliar with the center and are interested in receiving some uh, additional information, uh, back on the back table by the door, uh, there are brochures uh, that will give you a little bit of a sense of what we do here on the campus. And there is also some information. Uh, there's a save the date card that will tell you all of the things that are still coming up uh, between now and the end of the semester. And I also want to especially point out to you an event that's coming up this month on religion and migration. It's called the Good Samaritan in the Global Age, Migration, Religion, and the World Economy. Uh, that will be on March the 29th and 30th, uh, beginning with a keynote address at 4.30 uh, on the 29th by BorderLinks founder, uh, who some of you perhaps know or certainly have read about, uh, Rick Uford Chase. Uh, and that will be right here in this room. Uh, that's on a Thursday, March the 29th at 4.30. So to turn to today's event, uh, I'm sure uh, you are familiar with the tremendous extent to which religious issues have been part of constitutional uh, discussions, in particular in legal discussions more broadly. Uh, very important topic and a contested topic. Uh, just as one uh, small in indication of this, I looked at the uh, New York Times over the last uh, X number of years, which you can now do so easily. And over the last 25 years, the New York Times has carried more than 450 articles about religion and the Constitution. And another uh, kind of quick way of sensing uh, the importance of this topic is by looking at law review journals, uh, which one can also do nowadays uh, fairly easily. In the last six months alone, there have been more than 260 articles on religious freedom and the Constitution. Uh, but perhaps even more importantly, you know that even in the past few days, the Supreme Court has been uh, discussing uh, religion uh, once again uh, Almost uh, every few months, it seems, these topics come up. So we're very privileged today to have the opportunity to discuss uh, Professor Chris Eisgruber's new book entitled Religious Freedom and the Constitution. And we have uh, three distinguished panelists, uh, two of whom are here <laughs> at the moment, and uh, the third is on campus and, uh, as far as I understand, uh, making her way over uh, in a few moments. Um, so three distinguished panelists who have agreed to come today and offer their comments, uh, both on the themes uh, raised especially in uh, the book that Professor Eisgruber and his co-author Lawrence Sager uh, have raised, uh, and also uh, then to hear a response uh, from uh, Professor Eisgruber. Uh, all four of the speakers have distinguished uh, themselves in their research and their publications and their teaching and their service. Uh, so I'm going to have to be rude and not tell you all about the many wonderful things uh, they've done. Uh, otherwise, we'd have no time left for their remarks. Uh, we've asked each of the speakers to limit uh, his or her remarks to about 15 minutes. Uh, and just to give you a sense of the schedule for this afternoon, that will take us up to a break. Uh, during that intermission, we will have uh, some uh, refreshments for you out in the 
lobby and a chance for you to interact with one another and the speakers. And then after the break, uh, we will uh, continue the discussion uh, with your questions and answers and perhaps some additional exchange uh, among the panelists. Um, so our first speaker uh, is Professor Winifred Sullivan, whose JD and PhDs are from the University of Chicago. Uh, she comes to us today from the National Humanities Center in North Carolina, where she's spending the year. Uh, but otherwise, at least uh, when she uh, returns, uh, next year that is, uh, she will be found at SUNY Buffalo, uh, where she will be teaching law and will be directing the law and religion program. Uh, she's the author of a book published in 2005 entitled The Impossibility of Religious Freedom, and she is currently working on a new book tentatively entitled The Bible, the Koran, and Dr. Seuss, Prisoner Rehabilitation in the 21st Century. And I'm going to wait to introduce uh, the other uh, speakers, so in case uh, anyone comes in late, uh, they won't uh, be confused as to who is doing what. So, uh, Professor Sullivan. Okay. Thank you, Bob, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here at Princeton and uh, to be on this panel. Uh, let me say, first of all, that I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic with the political views represented in this book, uh, particularly the focus on fairness and anti-discrimination. I agree that separation of church and state as a concept is anachronistic, and probably, in some sense, un-American. I also believe that as a practical matter, something like what the authors Eisgruber and Sager call equal liberty uh, is the only possible approach to the presence of religious and other forms of diversity in a free democratic society, at least in this one. And I also gather that their position is not intended to be an historically defensible interpretation of the contemporary meaning of the religion clauses, which I take as license to dream, and that's what I'm going to do. I, uh, what I'm going to present today really is, um, as, as with Eisgruber and, and, and Sager, an effort to try to think these uh, problems um, anew without being, at least for the moment, uh, bound by um, the historical uh, situation of the, of the passage of the religion clauses. Uh, so, as I say, this is fine by me. I think that changes in American religion over the last 200 years make the achievement of such a satisfactory interpretation unlikely. But I will disagree to this extent. I think that um, Eisgruber and Sager exaggerate the extent to which their position is rightly described as religious freedom. Indeed, by calling their position equal liberty, I believe that they are abandoning the religious as a necessary qualifier, and I would agree with them. I think that's appropriate. Um, as they say on page six, religion, qua religion, should not be regarded as constitutionally anomalous or as deserving of special protection or prohibition. Uh, so as I understand this book, they would urge that basic constitutional principles of equality and liberty um, would recommend to us that all Americans, all people, be treated equally before the law uh, without regard to their uh, 
religiousness or not. Um, but I think that um, they sometimes pull back from this position. I don't think they go far enough, and I want to urge them to have the courage of their convictions. Uh, let me explain. I understand Eisgruber and Sager to be defending equal liberty as fundamental to U.S. constitutional democracy, that with Justice O'Connor and others, they regard the fundamental question in religion clause cases to be whether individuals are treated as equal before the law. The underlying assumption, then, is that differences among people should not be recognized by the law unless they are fundamental, and the presumption is that few such differences exist, if any. Assuming that to be the case, then, that is, that human rights should honor only what is human and universally human, there are two possible understandings of religion that I think could permit a reconciliation between religious freedom and equal liberty. That is, either, on the one hand, all humans are to be thought of as religious in some sense, and being religious is an important part of being human, so that their religiousness can perhaps, must, be a subject of government attention, always remembering that it has to be equal government attention. Or the alternative is that religion is not fundamental, but is a matter of private eccentricity, so it can be safely ignored by law, which again should treat all the same, notwithstanding their eccentricities. I will come back to these two alternatives. I think both have respectable pedigrees, and both can be used to support equal liberty. But neither position is where we are now, and also for good historical reasons. Where we are now is that Americans are rhetorically and sometimes legally divided into what's sometimes called people of faith and another group, I suppose people not of faith, although I don't know any such people. So that giving special attention to religion means now giving special attention only to religious people and not to this other group who might be called non-religious or people who don't self-identify as religious or people who other people don't regard as religious. And public language today is full of this dichotomy. Um, the expression people of faith is used quite casually, as if there is another group of people somewhere that are not of faith. I think, though, notwithstanding the, the wide use of this, um, this kind of rhetoric, it's also widely regarded as unfair when particular cases are, are considered um, by those who are maybe called religionists, especially with respect to disestablishment cases, where they regard religion as being treated unfairly, and by separationists with regard to free exercise, where some of them regard uh, non-religion to be treat treated unfairly. But it is not just a question of fairness. At the level of the individual, in a country without a religious establishment, such a division simply makes no sense descriptively. Such a division between people can only be made on a doctrinal basis by religious authorities who define insiders and outsiders. And whereas we no longer have a Church of England, um, that is, continues to be the basis on which this division is made. It's made on a doctrinal religious basis. And such authorities, as I say, no longer exist in the United States. Virtually all Americans claim the right, and the Constitution surely guarantees such a right, to associate themselves with religious communities and religious ideas and practices 
as they see fit, to change their religious ideas and to talk, sorry, to change their religious ideas um, and in, uh, in Eisgruber and Sager's words, to mix and match their religious traditions. Religious today in, religion today in the United States, for a long time perhaps, is a highly fragmented, fissiparous affair, enormously resistant to fixed identities and associations. Religion, all religion, is syncretic and unstable, particularly U.S. religion, disestablished, deregulated religion, and in my view, this makes it a very unreliable partner for law. It no longer makes sense to talk about churches as enduring corporate bodies representing identifiable groups of Americans. And so just to use the word church and the expression church and state, it seems to me is highly anachronistic. So in terms of constitutional doctrine, if dividing Americans between believers and unbelievers is an unacceptable establishment of a particular, mainly but not exclusively monotheistic and anachronistic understanding of religion. I th we will go back then to, to the two alternatives I mentioned above. So the majority opinions in Employment Division versus Smith and Lynch versus Donnelly take the second of my two alternatives. Religion is not fundamental to all humans and is therefore irrelevant for law. That position however appealing to the legal mind, and I admit to find it appealing on the days when religion just seems ridiculously messy or just plain ridiculous, is outrageous, as the public response to the Smith decision indicated, because it treats religion in such a way as to either simply cynically privilege the majority, or, which I think is what happened in the Smith case and is somewhat myopic position for a Roman Catholic judge particularly an Italian-American Roman Catholic judge who may, seems to have forgotten his uh, American religious history, or as if it is simply prehistoric, as Berger seems to have thought, or if you prefer, if it, as if it is a cultural anomaly in the French mode, um, at least in the sort of hard French mode. Actual French regulation of religion is more complicated. The other alternative, um, then, that's the alternative that religion is irrelevant. Um, the other alternative, which would universalize religion as a human experience, might be re represented by the faith-based initiatives. And I mean this in their most inclusive iteration, because I think it's very difficult to generalize about the faith-based initiatives at this point. It's a, it's a very complex reality. And, um, but in its most inclusive form, I think it does something like this, which is to universalize religion. Um, and I thought I would just mention a recent case that I found quite interesting, Freedom from Religion Foundation versus Nicholson, which was decided by the Western District of Wisconsin um, this year, challenged the constitutionality of a program of the VA chaplaincy as a part of its self-described holistic health care model and in response to accrediting requirements that all patients receive an initial spiritual assessment, the VA chaplaincy developed a spiritual assessment tool asking all patients about their religious identity, beliefs, and practices. Uh, they were sued by the Freedom From Religion Foundation and uh, lost, interestingly, on a motion for sum summary judgment. Now, while I think there are real establishment-type problems with the VA program, uh, among them would be the training and licensing of chaplains is controlled by mainstream religious organizations, 
Um, and there's real potential for abuse in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Um, the VA approach, which is explicitly voluntary, pluralistic and non-proselytizing, like chaplaincies in the prisons and the military, by avoiding dividing Americans into people of faith and people not of faith, could be a lot closer to what most Americans would regard as equal liberty. This approach is also more like the approach of many European countries, other than France, in which the state assumes responsibility for the religious well-being of citizens through schools, hospitals, etc. And religious freedom is guaranteed by inclusion rather than exclusion. In other words, uh, and now to, to get back to the book for a minute, um, as I mentioned, I think uh, Eisgruber and Sager pull back from, from a, a real commitment to equal liberty, and they use two examples as being the kind of uh, limit cases which don't allow them to uh, completely universalize equal liberty. Um, the two examples are the NER and women priests. And for those of you who haven't read, read the book, the NER is their proposed test case, could the government set, set up a national endowment for religion? Um, and at first blush, I think, this seems um, completely intuitively impossible. But I think the more you think about it and the more you think about something like the faith-based initiatives or chaplaincies in the military or the VA, um, I think it, it, it's something that's worth imagining, uh, at least as an alternative to this um, dichotomous discriminatory system that we have right now. As for women priests, the other intuitive case that uh, they give as a, as a test case, a limit case, um, they seem to assume that we would all agree, or uh, most of us, um, that the Catholic Church shouldn't be made to have women priests. Um, I'm not sure how right they are about how many people would agree with that, but, but I do think that um, the problem of women priests can be taken, part, taken care of as a part of associational liberty. Um, limited only by the government's insistence on equality when such associations become, become public rather than private institutions, as in the Bob Jones University case. I mean, the downside of this position is the need to make hard choices about exclusion, to be honest about what is now concealed. And that honesty, it seems to me, forces us to admit that religious freedom is always only for the religions we like. Always. And uh, one advantage of uh, being open about that is that we can talk about it. So in conclusion, uh, in my view, Eisgruber and Sager rightly focus on the equal treatment of persons rather than on special treatment for religion. Religion is thus no longer regarded as a force for good or ill, but simply as a persistent, varied, and important product of the human imagination. Maybe something we can't live without. Thank you. Our next panelist is Professor Eric Mazur, who chairs the Religion Department at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. He also coordinates the American Studies and Legal Studies minors there, uh, but not for long. Uh, he is decamping this summer to Virginia Wesleyan College to become the Gloria and David Furman Chair of Judaic Studies. His books include The Americanization of Religious Minorities, Confronting the Constitutional Order, 
and he is co-author of Religion on Trial, How the Supreme, How Supreme Court Trends Threaten Freedom of Conscience in America. And he's currently writing a book entitled Church and State in America. Professor Mazur. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, as a Virginian in the field of religious liberty, I am wholly aware, and I must admit grateful, given the outcome, that this institution, then called the College of New Jersey, was the alma mater of one of the Old Dominion's favorite sons, James Madison. He turned out okay, so I guess you guys know what you're doing here. I have to admit that I feel a bit out of place among all of the attorneys on the panel, although I am flattered to be a civilian among the speakers. I did once take a class on church-state relations taught by former UVA president Robert O'Neill in the law school there. And later I took another one on legal research offered through the University of California at Santa Barbara Office of Continuing Education. But in reality, I have no specific training as a lawyer. I did attend the oral arguments for the Mergens case when I was a lobbyist. And I have twice met Jay Seculo. (laughs) Although the last time was at a burrito stand in Virginia Beach, so that hardly counts. And although I did spend two years as a lobbyist working on church-state issues, my real training in this field is as a scholar of religion from the point of view of sociology of religion and American religious history. So today I will follow the advice that I give my own students and not pretend that I am more than I am by using legal jargon or Latin terms and really only embarrassing myself. My reflections on religious freedom in the Constitution, specifically the notion of equal liberty, are based on my training in the humanities and social sciences and it is from, excuse me, from there that I will speak. And today I want to suggest that while religious freedom and the Constitution is certainly part of a long history of scholarship on the First Amendment, it is also a fascinating reflection to me of how the meaning and role of religion in American society has changed over time. My own work is focused on the evolution of religion in American law, or more specifically the evolution of the relationship of American law and specific religious traditions. First and foremost among those, of course, is the relationship with Protestant Christianity, and it is against the backdrop of this relationship that all other relationships have been formed or foundered. From the beginning, Protestant sensibilities govern the creation and the interpretation of law. Protestantism dominated the public elites in the colonies, including Catholic Maryland, by the American Revolution. Even the recently disestablished Virginia Constitution, which preceded the Declaration of Independence by nearly a full month, gave with one hand while it took away with another. Thanks to James Madison, it's Article 16 granted free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience, but still noted that it was the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. Daniel Dreisbach points out that despite claims of many to the contrary, the U.S. Constitution itself is replete with religious references, all of them theistic, most of them specifically Christian, dating in the year of our Lord, for example, or not counting Sundays in the amount of time a president has to sign or veto legislation before it becomes law without his signature. In his own work on the state ratifying conventions, historian Stephen Marini illustrates how religiously homogenous the participants were, concluding that this homogeneity only perpetuated the same homogeneity 
of the Constitutional Convention that had created the document. So few Catholics, no Jews, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, or Native Americans. It makes perfect sense that, as Frank Wade describes it, the early legal system and the work of the early state courts reflected an overwhelmingly Protestant sensibility in a variety of areas, including settlements in church property disputes, requirements for Bible reading in the emerging public schools, in blue laws, and in prosecutions for blasphemy. Well into the 19th century, building on the Protestant ideology of Jefferson and Madison, but aided by the Calvinist theology of Unitarian Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, one of the most prolific and authoritative jurists on religion before the Civil War, the Protestant paradigm for understanding the world meant that religious liberty was based primarily on belief. Almighty God hath created the mind free, wrote Jefferson, but the body belonged to the state. The 1878 Reynolds decision would not only affirm this position, it would engrave it into church-state jurisprudence for the next 85 years. I recite this history not only because I believe it is the background against which we must understand all questions related to religious freedom, but because religion-based presumptions are always reflected in the cultural products of a particular time and place, from material culture like the arts to political culture like the laws. To use an example from popular culture, it is not surprising for there to be Christ figures in a great deal of what people in the overwhelmingly Christian United States read or see, or for English majors to see Christ figures in nearly everything. Just as it is not surprising for there to be Krishna, Vishnu, and Shiva figures in a great deal of what people in the overwhelmingly Hindu India read or see, or for Hindi majors to see those Krishna, Vishnu, or Shiva figures in nearly everything. Not only is the product, the story of the film, a reflection of a particular culture at a particular time, but the students themselves are conditioned by the same stimuli and are themselves a reflection of a particular culture at a particular time. It seems to follow that in a democracy like the United States, not only would the laws have a patina of Protestantism, but those working with and studying the laws would carry with them some of the same sensibilities. I'm reminded of the foundational work by Philip Schaff, writing from Union Theological Seminary in 1888 on the occasion of the centennial of the U.S. Constitution about the, quote, distinctive character of American Christianity and how, quote, the relationship of church and state in the United States secures full liberty of religious thought, speech, and action within the limits of the public peace and order. It makes persecution impossible, end quote. That was 1888. Uh, the work is a celebration of the American experiment of how the constitutional system is achieved in its highest in the history of Christianity. It is as much a source document about religion in the late 19th century America as it is an early introduction to the field of church-state theory. In many ways, all of our works are like that. We generally only ask questions that make sense at a given time or intellectual place. But because of that, we can track the relationship of religion, or any particular religion, and law by tracking not only what I have called the patina in the law, but also in the analysis of those working with and studying it. Let us take one of the central ideas of the present volume as an example. The authors suggest that the most level-headed way to proceed in dilemmas of the relationship of religion and law is through the application of what they call equal liberty, which they define as having three parts an anti-discrimination principle, a neutrality principle, and a general liberty principle. 
First, it requires, quote, that no members of our political community ought to be devalued on account of the spiritual foundation of their important commitments and projects, unquote. Second, it requires that religion receive no special benefits or be subject to special disabilities. And third, it requires a broad understanding of constitutional liberty generally. The authors spend the better portion of the book examining the utility of this notion against the mostly current state of First Amendment litigation involving religion and conclude that, equal, that quote, equal liberty is much the best hope of those whose religion, religious convictions put them crosswise with regulatory demands and that it, quote, recommends a path between uh, the extremes of strict separation and accommodation. Here's where I'll be brave and not pretend I'm a lawyer or legal theorist. Equal liberty strikes me as a good idea, and there are elements of it that are certainly attractive. But recalling my training as a lobbyist, I'm going to dodge the bullet of evaluation and answer the question that I hear rather than the one that is asked. So instead, I want to examine some of the presumptions behind the concept. On the one hand, it suggests that in the course of public human interaction, religion is no less important a motivating factor than any other claim. On the other hand, it suggests that religion is no more important either. It can neither trump nor be trumped by claims made by citizens in an open democracy where all are free to fulfill their spiritual needs, be they religious or not. It is this placement of religion that intrigues me, for it reflects, I believe, a different notion of religion in American society than might have been imagined by the framers, not that they had a lock on the truth, and certainly a different notion of religion than was used by many state and federal courts throughout the 19th and well into the 20th centuries. Equal liberty affirms religion, all religion. This is clearly the product of an increasingly diverse society that has adopted pluralism as part of its foundational ideology. Apparently gone is the preference for Christianity be it Protestantism or any Trinitarian tradition. While most of us would applaud this orientation or even not be terribly surprised by it, as a historian, I must still take a moment to reflect on how far it is from the state court decisions of the first half of the 19th century, like those involving Roman Catholic school children, for example, or the Supreme Court's decision in Reynolds, where religious practice was labeled odious and uncivilized and not something that civilized people of Northern and Western Europe would do. The enormous space between these two positions, of course, is what happened after the first establishment, the ratification of the First Amendment, when over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century, Protestant Christianity lost its monopoly, if not its centrality, over American public culture. As historian Robert Handy points out, by World War I, increased public roles for Catholics and Jews, the rise of major sectarian groups, increased division between Protestant groups and the modernist fundamentalist split within Protestantism would shatter the once apparent monolith of American conservative Protestantism. Signs like the seating of Mormon Senator Reed Smoot, the confirmation of Jewish Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, and even the defeat of Prohibition all reflected the revolution in American religion taking place. By the 1950s, Jews and Catholics would move into suburbia with Protestants, and the three would be, according to sociologist Will Herberg, the three great American faiths. It may not be coincidental, then, that Catholic Supreme Court Justice Brennan would author the majority opinion in Sherbert, which, for good or ill, fundamentally altered the way the court viewed the relationship between belief and action, giving the court a model that seemed less Protestant and more in keeping with the rest of the world's religious traditions. 
But of course, things would not end there. Advances in pharmacology leading to the development of the pill, and I always, I'm reminded of Lenny Bruce's line, there's only one the church, and there's only one the pill. Uh, and the subsequent social revolution and gender relations, the parallel social revolutions in the African-American, Hispanic, Native American, and gay communities, changes in immigration law leading to massive migration from East and South Asia, products and ideas uh, uh, from those same areas, the generation gap fueled by both a baby boom and the above-mentioned social, above social chaos, uh, plus, just for kicks, Vietnam and Watergate, all of these elements would continue the transformation in the place of religion in American society. In what sociologists like Phil Hammond have called the third disestablishment, not only would Protestantism lose its monopoly in American public culture, but religion itself as an institution of meaning construction and maintenance would lose its monopoly. By the 1980s, particularly for those living in more metropolitan areas, particularly along the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, the likelihood that one would die in the religious tradition into which one had been born was no longer a given. Religion scholars began to talk about things like market share and competition for membership among religious communities who subconsciously recognize that they cannot guarantee personal loyalty of their membership and the rational choices congregants will make about where they belong and why. Others, uh, most notably Princeton's own Robert Withnow, Trace the deinstitutionalization of American spiritualism, the rise of religious seekers, and the restructuring of American religion along ideological rather than denominational lines, proven by the election of 2000 in which the best single predictor of how someone would vote was not geography, income, gender, or religious identity, but frequency of attendance at a house of worship, any house of worship. By becoming deinstitutionalized, spirituality, increasingly seen as the opposite of religion, has become more pervasive as it has become more elusive. Scholars of the so-called Generation X, like Tom Bowden, have suggested that it is miles wide but inches deep. Others, including myself, have explored how seemingly non-religious phenomena, the Burning Man Festival, for example, Disney World, or the Super Bowl, can serve as spiritual surrogates for religion in a world where the goal is increasingly the personal experience and not the sense of community, tradition, texts, or other traditional trappings of religion. In this environment, religion and religious identi identity matter less and less. Polling data on religion now includes the category none, that's N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, uh, not atheists or agnostics, but people who just can't be bothered. It strikes me as ironic that Roman Catholics come to dominate the Supreme Court at just the historical moment when institutional religious identity matters least. It therefore makes sense that the notion of equal liberty affirm not only the value of religion, but the equality of experiences to religion and the radical role of the individual in his or her pursuit of happiness. This is in perfect keeping with the direction of religion and religious institutions in the United States over the last 40 years and reflects a demotion of religion generally from its once privileged position in American public life. This demotion has in many ways been a positive thing, removing as it does the authority of the Protestant Heilsgeschichte, holy history, that has overwhelmed many conversations about and investigations of American history and culture. It removes the notion so common among scholars, or rather theologians of the First Amendment, who forget that the so-called first freedom 
was actually third on the list of things to do that became the Bill of Rights, just behind apportionment and congressional pay increases. The removal of privilege for religion also permits work like that, that done by John Wilson. Are you still here, John? Uh, who has explored the realpolitik of the First Amendment included that its main goal was to preserve the union behind a clear understanding of federalism that would permit state establishments to continue even if the new Congress would stay out of the fray. But the notions embodied by equal liberty also retain a patina of Protestantism that suggests the need for continued conversations about what religious freedom can mean in an increasingly diverse American society. The move of culture generally toward a radical individualism only takes to its logical extreme the bedrock Protestant notion of the personal relationship with the divine. And the personal pursuit of the spiritual is no more than the embodiment of the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Additionally, the splitting of beliefs from actions also suggests a Protestant worldview, although it is one that is so ingrained in the very concept of democracy that it may be inevitable. Thoughts, one presumes, will always be one's own, but it seems reasonable for governments to regulate actions on some level. And of course, the government can be entirely unconcerned about one's thoughts as long as one's actions are in accord with the rules. No one cares if you believe that God commands you to stop at a red light and go at a green light. It is when God commands you to go on red and stop on green that you run into trouble. It is this very dilemma that has occupied much of my own thinking. How do religious communities negotiate the inevitable, inevitable dilemma of authority when their religious tradition commands one action and the law commands another? Some alter their beliefs to accommodate changed actions, or seem to, while others successfully translate their beliefs so that the law can accommodate them. Others are either hopelessly at odds with the law, and finally, others just don't care. But in all of these cases, it is less about beliefs and more about actions, and the definitions of religious freedom for them are not contained necessarily in the workings of the First Amendment. Years ago, Barbara Burt and Frank Way analyzed First Amendment religion cases and concluded that it is the marginal groups who bear the brunt of litigating of what would be called central religious practices, rituals, and so on, while the mainstream groups tend to litigate over privileged matters, matters that include status like zoning, tax, employment issues, and the like. Given what I have described here, it is plain that what the marginal groups are encountering is the mainstream Protestant remnants in the laws that limit the actions of the non-traditional, but favor the actions of the mainstream. That is to, th to say, there just aren't that many great free exercise decisions concerning limitations being placed on Episcopalians. I think that the rubber hits the road less in the discussion of the First Amendment specifically, and more in the discussion of the encounter of religious individuals and groups with the legal system more generally. A quick study of the most popular case books, for example, reveals a canon of just a small sample of the over 200 Supreme Court decisions related to religion. It is true that not all of these 200 are First Amendment decisions properly understood, but the 30 or so brought by Mormons between 1878 and 1910, the 50 or so brought by Jehovah's Witnesses between 1938 and 1960, these are of vital importance to those respective communities and should be to us as well. But our discussion about the First Amendment and about the rhetoric and historical momentum that has developed around it may be leading us to perpetuate patterns that are increasingly out of step 
with new ways of being religious or spiritual in 21st century America. Is First Amendment litigation, for example, tied anachronistically to an institutional conceptualization of religion? All of the patterns of litigation in this area suggest that it is getting less so. Take the case of conscientious, the history of conscientious objection cases. But will those working in the area of the First Amendment be able to make the leap when religious identity becomes entirely fluid? Historian Gordon Wood once wrote, uh, quote, it may be a necessary fiction for lawyers and jurists to believe in a correct or true interpretation of the Constitution in order to carry out their business, but we historians have different obligations and aims. I recognize that I work in a field whose scholars actually often prefer the absence of a definition of religion, regardless of what we might say to the contrary. It gives us job security. I can, in the same breath, identify everything as religion, distinguish between religions and religion, and deny the very existence of anything called religion. As a teacher, I have the freedom to tell my students that both creationism and evolutionism are religion-like worldview constructs, and then sit back and watch their heads spin as they try to figure out how teachers in the public schools can teach anything that could pass constitutional muster. Those who work on the law side of the religion and law debate don't necessarily have that freedom. Given the pattern of increasingly radical individualism, are the frontiers of religious freedom to be found in the 14th Amendment rather than the first? My own mentor, Philip Hammond, has pondered the future of litigation over such issues as gay rights, euthanasia, and abortion, and concluded that it is conscience that is at the conceptual heart of the First Amendment. I respectfully disagree and have the non-legal theorist sense that it is more likely that such issues, religious as they are to those of us who work on that side of the aisle, will find a home elsewhere in the world of constitutional jurisprudence, where people less comfortable with playing with the definition of religion might locate them. In the end, as I said, I am free to go back to my classroom and play lawyer with my students. History suggests that there are certain trajectories, that there is a certain momentum, but that there are often slow transformations that, that can, it seems, move mountains. The framework developed by Professors Eisgruber and Sager is not only rich in what it offers us in the current discussion of the possibilities for meaningful religious freedom, but is also reflective of the dramatic changes that have taken place with relation to the very understanding of religion in the United States. If we are con to continue to have meaningful discussions, we must continue to reevaluate the terms and assumptions that we bring to the table. I appreciate the work of Professors Eisgruber and Sager, and I hope I have returned the favor. Thank you. The next speaker is Professor Marcy Hamilton. Professor Hamilton holds the Paul R. Verkule Chair in Public Law at the Benjamin Cardoza School of Law at Yeshiva University and is the author most recently of a book entitled God Versus the Gavel, Religion and the Rule of Law, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2005. Uh, and also she's the author uh, recently of a Notre Dame Law Review article entitled The Religious Origins of Disestablishment Principles that was published in 2006. She is the First Amendment advisor for victims in many clergy abuse cases and represents a number of cities and neighborhoods challenging the constitutionality of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. 
Professor Hamilton clerked for Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor of the United States Supreme Court and Justice Edward R. Becker of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. She received her J.D. magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Professor Hamilton. Thanks very much. It's nice to be here. And I'd like to thank both the center and Chris for including me in such an interesting program. I was delighted to get the invitation when I got it. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting to talk about, uh, and maybe we can only do this in an academic setting, the notion that maybe religion isn't a category anymore. Uh, it made me think uh, about uh, 10 days ago, my daughter had appendicitis, and the, the surgeon couldn't figure out what to do. And because it wasn't showing up on the scopes, you know, all, all, of, all of modern science was giving them no clues except her cons- persistent pain. And uh, he said to me, he came in and he sat down in the, ho- in the hospital room and he said, uh, d- do you mind if I use the word evolution? <laughs> and I looked and I said, well, my husband's a, a chemist. Yeah, that, that's probably okay in my universe. And I said, what an odd question. And he said, well, the reason I want to talk about is the appendix is evolving out of the system. The human system is not really needed. Don't worry about it if that's what we have to cut out when we go in. And I said, okay. And he said, but I had this experience last week where a mother was in my office and her daughter had a, a fairly serious problem that needed surgery, and it involved the bone that is thought to, be, uh, to have been attached to the tail. So he started to tell this mother that the daughter's problem was an evolutionarily unnecessary problem, and when they remove it, she'll have no problems. Well, the minute he said the word evolution in front of the child, the mother jumped up and said, that's a word we don't say in our house. I homeschool so she doesn't hear that word and walked out. Uh, So in a doctor's office, we have religion. I think it is unavoidable that it's a category and that it is uh, not only part of the text of the Constitution and therefore a little bit difficult to avoid, but that it's also part of history, but it's also part of human experience that is uh, just as a matter of history, you can't find a culture where religion wasn't present even if it was being intentionally repressed. But I have to say I think Winnie's point is pretty brilliant. Um, Chris and Larry have created a theory which is this book brings to its full fruition called uh, Equal Regard. Uh, It's an anti-discrimination theory. And she has a very good point that the theory actually doesn't need religion anymore. So to call their book Religious Freedom is maybe not quite accurate. I mean, their, their idea is more an idea of human freedom across uh, ideas and across beliefs and across uh, a wide variety of individuals. And so... I, I think that is actually, uh, that's pretty much on target. But having said that, Chris, of course, has been in the law school community as I am, and when you talk about church-state issues in that universe, what you are talking about is always where to draw the line. That is the question. When does the government get to regulate? What's the line which it cannot cross? For Chris and Larry, the line is equal regard. 
a concept of equality, a concept of anti-discrimination. I'm going to get to that in a minute and uh, some of the, the reservations I have about characterizing the project that way. But I thought the only way to explain my reservations was that, to start with a brief explanation of where I would draw the line on religious liberty and why I would draw it in a different way and in a way that is explicitly uh, attentive to religion. I think there are actually three principles uh, in any attempt to reduce religious uh, liberty concepts in the United States to any one principle is probably problematic. I think there are three principles that are absolutely crucial. Uh, one of them is not anti-discrimination. It is anti-persecution. That is quite a different concept than uh, the notion of discrimination. It's the notion that the government may not single out a religious group or religion as a general matter to uh, be treated not so much without respect and not so much to be treated uh, in a different way from non-religious individuals or from other religious individuals, but rather to be treated as though they should be oppressed and pushed out of the society. Persecution is an intent to push the belief out of the society, to push the group out of the society. I think that's a different motive that is behind the religion clauses, and it's certainly consistent with why so many of the believers from Europe came to the United States. It was persecution they were fleeing, not discrimination. Uh, the second principle that's unavoidable for any aspect of the Constitution is that we have a complex, a contested, but we have a concept of the rule of law, which applies in the vast majority of circumstances to uh, any individual or group. And the third principle that I think is the principle that has been left out of the debate, uh, and it is, really was the purpose for my uh, writing God versus the Gavel, is the concept is John Stuart Mill's idea of the no harm principle, that when we're trying to figure out where to draw the line in the United States, there's no question when we look at criminal law and tort law, they sit rather squarely on a million uh, foundation. I think that same foundation is relevant in figuring out when it is religious individuals or groups should be free to do that which their religion would force them to do. So I have no problem, actually, with the Smith, the much maligned, but the uh, Supreme Court's peyote decision in the Smith decision, because what the court says is that government must enact laws if it expects those laws to apply to everybody regardless of belief. It must enact laws that are neutral and generally applicable. And it turns out what that means is ruthlessly neutral. Right? The government has to act in a way that it is regulating with respect to the larger public good and not just with respect to the entity in front of it. And if, but if it does that, if it's acting in a fashion in which it's looking at neutral public policy, that law will be capable of being applied to religious individuals. And so in Smith, what that meant is that the individuals who had uh, broken the narcotics laws in Oregon and therefore lost their unemployment compensation rights couldn't get unemployment compensation under the Constitution. The Constitution was not going to require the provision of that unemployment compensation. But the, really the most important part of that opinion is when the court then moves to the next stage and the court says, but we know that legislatures in the United States are solicitous toward religious accommodation 
And we expect there to be a wide variety of opportunities for religious groups to be able to attain accommodationist treatment. And th there's no better case in the history of the United States to prove that point than what happened after Smith. Right? What happens after Smith is all the states within which the Native American church resides, that portion that uses peyote, not all those members do, and the federal government all pass exemptions for peyote. Right? The, the court actually nails it. Here is the system, the court says. And the system actually follows suit. But the response to Smith is, in my view, quite thoughtless. How could the court not have come to protect this religious organization and these individuals? It was a vehement response. It was a misleading response by, unfortunately, uh, certain legal academics. But in the end, uh, the court had gotten it right, in my view. And so for me, the baseline is the Smith decision. I think the theory of the Smith decision is quite defensible under all three of my principles. Anti-persecution, the rule of law, and the concept that society is intended to reduce the amount of harm to the extent that it can. Now, Chris and Larry liked Smith. Uh, the neutrality part uh, sounds in their concepts of equality. Uh, but as I read through the book, it seems like apparently what they're saying, if I fully understand, is sometimes Smith doesn't go far enough. That there are times when the judiciary ought to provide more protection than Smith might have provided. And so the question then has to be posed, and this is the question that they do cycle back to throughout the book, and legitimately so. The question has to be proposed. What is meant by equal regard, right? And what is meant by anti-discrimination in this context? I'm pretty clear on what anti-discrimination means in the race-based context, right? I mean, I think we've got that pretty well secure at this point. But what does it mean in this context? And this, I think, is what bears further illumination by uh, Chris and Larry. And I think that, uh, I, and I, I welcome the further illumination, actually, because I think that they, they, are, uh, they are articulating a defensible line to be drawn. I'm just not sure it can be drawn. And here's the problem. The phrase discrimination is, of course, uh, is of course socially loaded. At the same time, it lacks content in so many contexts. It is both a, uh, a, a specific term that arouses certain social response but that when you go to look at it, it can often, depending on the context, look quite opaque. This week in constitutional law, I've been teaching the dormant Commerce Clause cases, my least favorite cases of all the cases that you could possibly find by the court. I'd like to burn that part of the textbook. But the, the principle in the dormant Commerce Clause, first of all, the notion that there's a dormant Commerce Clause has to be explained. But the principle in every case is anti-discrimination, that one state can't discriminate against another state. But then you get to the next case, and it's that Clarkstown, New York, can't discriminate against waste carriers in New York and out of New York. Right? And then you get to another case where the state of North Carolina can't discriminate against apple growers in Washington. I mean, you can't figure out what is the baseline for the problematic discrimination the way the court has articulated it. 
And I think there is a similar problem in the equal regard thesis. And let me be more specific about that. Whenever the book tries to explain why it's not problematic, that their thesis is not just focusing on religion, but is actually validating uh, both non-religious and religious viewpoints, the book says, well, there's religious belief, and then there are serious beliefs that other people hold. And there's religious belief, and then there's weighty beliefs that other people hold. So that the secular beliefs that are to be weighed as to whether or not there's been equal treatment are are secular beliefs that are weighty and serious. And the religious beliefs are religious beliefs. I think what that means is that, first, you can't avoid the uh, inevitable weighty content of a religious concept, that uh, no matter what it is in, the, in our society, it has great heft. But, but the problem is, is how, how do the courts figure out when is a secular belief sufficiently weighty that it should be on the same terrain as a religious belief in terms of the government's treatment. That, for me, is the part that I don't quite understand, and I don't know how to get beyond that, actually. And I did go back and reread the book to try to figure out if there was a point at which just secular beliefs were just the same as religious beliefs, And no, it is this concept of weightier secular beliefs over and against religious beliefs, and that's the baseline. I think that is uh, a very, very, very difficult line to not only draw, but for anybody to agree on, uh, let alone see. Now, I mean, it's it's very ambitious. Not, Not only did they take on the free exercise clause, but they also take on the establishment clause and argue that equal regard will actually be helpful in that context, and and both the the book is quite explicit, and as uh, Winnie was saying, that separation cannot be the metaphor, that uh, it doesn't make any sense, and at one point in the book, there's a statement to the effect that we all know that religion and the state are never fully separate. I want to make a pitch, though, uh, for the importance of the separation concept. Uh, and to reiterate that constitutional lines are never based on any kind of absolute bright line because so few exist. The only absolute bright line in the entire Constitution is the right to believe whatever you want. After that, it's all line drawing. So the fact that church and state are empirically often side-by-side, interrelated, does not undermine the utility of a concept of separation. I think that separation actually is quite helpful in reminding us of the aspiration of separate identity between church and state of what's most revolutionary about the Constitution. And what separation has done as a concept is that it has created a cycle of bringing unpopular, powerless religions into power. And so I'd like to close on just giving you four examples of how the concept of separation, which keeps uh, the government from engaging in certain relationships with religion, um, how that has actually played out in the culture. And I think that it has done probably a better job than equal regard might have done. The first is the Baptists. 
right? The Baptists start out in Massachusetts maligned. Uh, the Quakers were even more hated by the Congregationalists. And uh, the Quakers are actually, uh, uh, not the Quakers, the Baptists are actually the source of the, uh, the depth of the concept of separation. They were the ones that fundamentally saw and wrote and preached about the concept that if we don't separate the power of the state from these congregationalists, we will never have religious liberty. So that separation is the means to religious liberty in their own writings and in their own speakers. And what we see is the Baptists start at the very bottom of the pile. And we now have the Baptists, of course, they've broken into two major groups in the United States, but the Baptists have, of course, become a social power. I mean, it's just un there's no other way to talk about them at this point. Both the, the Baptists that see their origin in separation, which is now a very active group, the Baptist Joint Committee, and the Baptists who do not see their origin in the same way. They don't think that separation is a valuable concept. So uh, the Baptists are one example. The Catholics are another example. Hated, hated, despised. The hope was we, we could keep them out of the public schools in some way. We now have five members of nine on the Supreme Court who are Catholics. Catholics no longer bear the stigma in either the marketplace or the political context that they did even less than a century ago. The Native American church. Here's a tiny church. Who would ever call them politically powerful? Right? But they have gained the ability to practice their religion in every state where they exist. And the notion that uh, the politically powerless are uh, the churches we ought to be concerned about with respect to religious liberty, I think it's just empirically wrong. Powerless churches have done quite well in the United States, and they continue to well. And my last example, and there are many more that I could offer, but my last example would be the Mormons. Right? We just heard the Mormons were odious in the Reynolds decision. They were told that they could be penalized just for being members in the Beeson decision. And Mitt Romney looks like the lead candidate for the presidency among conservative Republicans. I mean, there is something in the American society that is very interesting that turns the oppressed religions into the powerful religions. And that, I think, is where the focus needs to be. And I don't think it's just equality. I don't think equality is enough. I think there is an empowerment of religion itself that is part of that. And uh, I will leave it at that. Thanks very much. Lastly, for a response, uh, Professor Chris Eisgruber is the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Professor of Public Affairs in the Woodrow Wilson School and the University Center for Human Values, and since 2004 has been the provost of Princeton University. His publications include the book that has been our focus today, written with Lawrence Sager, entitled Religious Freedom and the Constitution, just published by Harvard University Press, of course. In addition to numerous articles, he is also the author of Constitutional Self-Government. Before joining the Princeton faculty in 2001, he clerked for Judge Patrick Higginbotham of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and for Justice John Paul Stevens of the United States Supreme Court, and then served for 11 years on the faculty of the New York University School of Law.
my fellow panelists have given me a lot to answer to. Uh, before I make an effort to do that, let me start by uh, thanking uh, Bob Withnow and uh, Dave Michelson from the Center for the Study of Religion for putting this event uh, together. I'm very grateful uh, to them for doing that and to thank uh, all three of the panelists for uh, reading the book with such uh, care and responding to it with such uh, insight and uh, imagination. It's uh, one of the pleasures of writing a book to get these, this kind of serious attention uh, to it, and I'm very grateful for that. I also want to thank all of you for coming out on this chilly uh, uh, Friday afternoon. Uh, I, I'm going to try because I'm keenly aware that um, uh, some of you have uh, read the book and, and some of you have uh, not read the uh, book. I'm going to try to give a series of uh, answers here that uh, integrate some of what the book has to uh, say with responses to the particular comments that have been offered uh, here, if that works, it should produce this nice, coherent tapestry of uh, exposition and answers. Uh, if it doesn't work, it'll produce kind of an incoherent mess. <laughs> I, I, I want you to know in advance that I'm aiming at the tapestry thing, not at the uh, incoherent mess. We'll see where I, um, uh, where I end up. Um, as a couple of the panelists have said, uh, Equal Liberty recommends uh, um, an alternative to traditional approaches to uh, religious liberty. Uh, and it recommends those uh, approaches on the ground that it can account for uh, some of the tuitions, the intuitions that people commonly share about these cases. And we think at the same time provide a framework in which to argue about uh, the disagreements that people have and will continue to have because these are subjects that people care a lot about and we're not going to resolve them. But it will provide a framework in which uh, people can make more progress toward at least understanding what is at stake and perhaps in some cases uh, toward identifying uh, common ground. Uh, there, there are two basic propositions to uh, equal liberty. As Eric said, a third proposition kind of falls out of uh, that. Uh, one of those propositions is a commitment to what we call equal membership, the idea that uh, no member of the political community ought to be devalued on the basis of the spiritual uh, foundations of their important commitments uh, and projects, that no member of the political community ought to be devalued on the basis of the spiritual foundations of their important commitments and projects. And, and, and then the, the kind of the corollary to this, which uh, Eric mentioned in his remarks, is we think that is the only uh, way in which uh, the Constitution cares distinctively about religion as such. That is, its concern about religion is this kind of concern about equal membership within the community. Secondly, though, we think that often one's intuitions about um, uh, uh, religious liberty cases or claims that are made in the name of religious liberty uh, will be shaped by something else which we think is true about the Constitution, which is that it should guarantee all members of the community uh, broad liberties related to speech, privacy, and association. So at times, for example, liberties of free speech will be very useful to religious persons who want to make religious uh, speeches. Uh, that, we think, is an important part of the overall account of religious liberty in the United States, even though we think that the particular rights there are not ones that are in any sense specific um, uh, to religion. So with those two propositions in the background, let me start to respond to some of the things that um, the uh, uh, panelists have said about the uh, book. And there are various overlaps, so I'm going to try to group these by uh, topic rather than by uh, speaker. And let me start with some of the things that were said about um, uh, history. Uh, Winnie Sullivan said something about this, and then I want to uh, segue a bit to some of the remarks that Eric Mazur made. Uh, Winnie said at one point in um, uh, her remarks that our uh, position here is um, not intended to be historically defensible. I think if I uh, wrote that down uh, accurately and, and said that uh, she took this as a license, I think, to 
um, uh, imagine or uh, aspire. Uh, and I, I think this is partly right. Uh, uh, I think the way she said it, it's entirely right. But I wanted to make a certain clarification about it uh, that is uh, important. Um, the, the sense in which we don't try to offer a historically defended thesis here is uh, the following. That is, there are some people who believe about the Constitution uh, that the interpretation of its abstract and ambiguous phrases ought to turn heavily upon particular details of history. So they begin by observing, as uh, we do, that the Constitution speaks in abstract terms, saying that Congress ought not to prohibit the free exercise of religion, nor make any laws respecting the establishment of uh, religion. And they say, well, it's hard to know what it is that that means, uh, and therefore our response to that ought to be to, be to study, say, specific letters from the framers of the Constitution or events that occurred around the framing of the uh, Constitution. Now, we say in the book, uh, and this is where uh, Winnie has us exactly right, that it's not our intention to do that here. That is, our intention is to take the um, statements that appear in the First Amendment to the Constitution as what we, in fact, think they are and were intended to be, which is as abstract statements of principle related to uh, uh, religion and uh, religious freedom, and to ask what the best interpretations of those statements are regarding them as abstract statements about uh, religious freedom. In that sense, we don't mean to offer a historical justification for our position. We're not saying that you ought to believe equal liberty because the framers believed in equal liberty as the best interpretation of those principles. But I do want to stress there's another sense in which we regard this as entirely historically defensible. That is, it is our view that the best way to interpret that the Constitution that the framers wrote is as a constitution of abstract principles to be interpreted uh, in this way, and that it is unfaithful, rather than especially faithful to the Constitution, to ignore the abstract principles that are actually stated in the constitutional text and to substitute for them particular historical practices which were not expressed in the constitutional uh, text. Now, I, I want to move from, from that set of observations to uh, address some of the things that Eric Mazur said in his uh, remarks about uh, uh, history and uh, culture and how they matter to uh, the interpretation of the religion clauses of the uh, Constitution and more generally our claims about um, uh, religious uh, freedom. Uh, what are our reasons for not going into some of the things that Eric uh, accurately uh, described about um, uh, the kind of historical and sociological context uh, for the religion uh, clauses. Well, let me, let me first of all state it's not because we believe that those uh, questions are uninteresting ones or questions that cannot be uh, profitably uh, investigated. So I think it's perfectly possible to ask uh, what caused the framers to write the religion clauses the way they uh, did. That is, they were uh, persons with biographies and uh, histories, and one can ask what sorts of things led to this and what events in their uh, lives might have led them to take the positions that they uh, did. And I uh, don't have any objection uh, to the view that uh, the Protestantism of the country influenced its attitudes toward uh, religious freedom. I don't see how that could be um, uh, otherwise. Um, on the other hand, as I just said a moment ago, we don't believe that it's appropriate, given that they chose to incorporate abstract principles rather than other ones, to constrain those principles by reference to those sorts of uh, details. Uh, nor do I think that it's uh, uh, um, impossible to ask questions uh, about um, what the best interpretations of those principles are uh, in some way that uh, tries to abstract from the particular 
um, sociological or historical uh, uh, context. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, uh, Eric talked a bit about Justice Brennan's uh, role in um, uh, making decisions about uh, school prayer and about uh, uh, the Sherbert versus Werner, which is the first of these exemptions case that I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about uh, in a moment, and said, well, perhaps this is attributable to Justice Brennan's uh, Catholicism. Well, perhaps it's attributable to Justice Brennan's uh, Catholicism. On the other hand, I think it's hard to make too much progress on these kinds of analyses. We have Justice Scalia as a Catholic disagreeing with Justice Brennan as a Catholic on virtually every uh, issue. Um, there may be ways to parse uh, some of that out. Uh, again, the, the question that Larry Sager and I want to ask in this book is what is the best interpretation of these uh, principles? Uh, the, the second respect in, in which I, I do think it matters uh, how society has uh, developed um, but not in a way that interferes with our uh, project, is that it's, it's certainly true uh, that the set of views that we hold today about the application of these principles is one that reflects various developments in our um, religious uh, background. So it, it is perfectly consistent with the recommendations of equal liberty to observe that, first of all, there, the court today has a religious composition that really is remarkable uh, in the context of American uh, history. A couple of the panelists referred to the fact that there are five Catholic justices on the court, and most of the population seems not to care about the fact that there are five justices uh, on the court. There are also two Jewish justices uh, on the court, which would have been an incendiary thing at various points in our uh, history. And again, for the most part right now, um, uh, uh, people do not uh, care about that. This is certainly... Uh, um, consistent and admirable from the standpoint of uh, equal liberty, which uh, suggests that one's Catholicism or Judaism ought not to be a ground for disqualification from the court. On the other hand, as a causal matter, it's certainly connected to the uh, declining importance of sectarianism in the United States that Bob Withnow has uh, written about and uh, uh, explained. Uh, likewise, uh, one of the cases that we celebrate in the book is a case called... Um, uh, the city of Hialeah versus the church of Lakumi Babalu I, one of my favorite uh, cases, and when I know there are a couple of students from my uh, uh, class in the audience, I actually tend to repeat this particular case name as uh, often as possible. Hialeah versus Lakumi Babalu I is one of the few Supreme Court names that sound like it ought to be sung rather than uh, <laughs> recited. But uh, Lakumi versus Babalu I is a 1990s uh, case involving the Santerian uh, religion in which the city of Hialeah passed a law prohibiting the ritual slaughter of animals. The Supreme Court eventually took that case uh, and ruled in favor of the Santerian church by a nine-to-nothing vote. That is, all of the conservatives and the liberals, all of the um, uh, Catholics and non-Catholics on the court were able to agree that the free exercise of religion protected this particular practice. I think this kind of protection by the court from a statute directed at the Santerian uh, religion is something that we would not have seen at an earlier point in our uh, history. Uh, it's something, again, related to the declining importance of sectarianism. But I think we can also ask the question about it, not just causally, why did this happen, but the question, ought we to uh, approve of this result or not? And our answer to this is, yes, we ought to approve of this result, because this was an example of protecting this particular church from a kind of discrimination. This statute was clearly directed at it, and indeed it singled out, as I said a moment ago, the ritual slaughter of animals and allowed other kinds of slaughter of animals to take place within the city of uh, Hialeah. 
With those observations about the, the, the importance of history and, and social context, or the lack of importance, depending how you want to look at that, I want to turn now to some of the claims that are made uh, directly about the question that Larry and I want to ask, which is whether or not this is the right way to think about how it is that the Constitution protects uh, religious freedom. And I want to start in that regard with uh, Winnie Sullivan's interesting uh, suggestion uh, that what Larry and I have offered here is uh, a theory that isn't really about religious freedom, qua religious freedom uh, at all, but rather some more general kind of uh, human freedom. I think it's the way actually Marcy Hamilton uh, put it in her uh, comments. I, I'd have to hear more about this to know exactly how to react to that uh, particular um, uh, suggestion. Uh, uh, Larry and I don't have any particular stake in claiming that this is a theory of religious freedom as opposed to a theory about uh, human freedom. Uh, we, we, the claim we want to make about it is that there are a series of cases that arise, for example, under the free exercise and establishment clauses of the Constitution, and that the theory we recommend here is the right way to address those uh, uh, questions. Um, I, I think if that's so, and if, if Winnie uh, were to agree with us about that, uh, we would be willing, I think, to say that from our standpoint, it didn't much matter whether or not this was then classified as a theory of religious freedom. I think there are reasons, though, to think about it um, uh, that way. And, and so um, uh, let me say a little bit about, uh, about how the theory um, applies. Uh, and, and here it may be important to give uh, some examples. And let me start off with a, uh, with a case from the uh, Newark City Police Department. Um, that arose uh, here in New Jersey a few years ago. There were a couple of Islamic officers uh, in the Newark uh, Police Department uh, who were obliged by virtue of their religion uh, to wear beards. The Newark Police Department had a uh, grooming regulation requiring that all of its officers be clean-shaven. Uh, Newark's uh, justification for this was that it said that it thought... Uh, uh, bearded officers would be frightening uh, to people, whereas clean-shaven officers would not be frightening to uh, uh, people. And these officers said, well, we can't shave because of our uh, religion. Uh, if you don't give us an exemption to this particular rule, uh, we would, in fact, have to leave the uh, force. Uh, and the Newark Police Department said, well, we're sorry, but this is what it takes to be a police officer in the city of um, uh, Newark. Um, the traditional... Uh, free exercise approach to this question is to uh, treat religion as a kind of constitutional anomaly and to ask the question whether or not the state is required in some way to take religious practices and treat them as presumptively immune uh, from uh, state regulation, in which case the officers might be able to win depending on how important the court thought that uh, Newark's interest in having clean-shaven officers uh, was, or whether instead, because the rule is uh, neutral and generally uh, applicable, at least as I've stated it so far, the, the officers automatically uh, lose in the uh, case. Framed that way, I think you begin to get a real conflict between the kinds of principles that Marcy Hamilton laid out in her remarks. She said that one important uh, 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 kind of concern for uh, the freedom of religion was anti-persecution. Another important concern was the rule of law. And if you start having a presumption related to religious liberty that says that on the basis of your religious motivations, you may be entitled to an exemption that nobody else gets from the law, all of a sudden, uh, the protecting religious freedom seems to be at odds uh, with the rule of law, which was the problem that um, uh, occupied the court in the Smith decision that she mentioned and that I'll come to 
um, in a moment. This case was uh, actually decided by uh, Judge Samuel Alito, now Justice uh, Samuel Alito, when he sat on the third uh, circuit. And Alito followed an argument put forward by some of the lawyers in the case that went in the following way. Uh, these lawyers pointed out, they said, look, the Newark Police Department has actually made an exemption to this very regulation in the past. That exemption was made for police officers who suffered from a condition called folliculitis. Folliculitis is a skin condition uh, that uh, makes it painful for uh, people to shave. And Newark had said, well, if you have this disability, we will grant you an exemption from our grooming regulation. And Judge Alito in this case said, that Newark was obliged to treat the religious commitments of these Islamic officers with the same respect that it had shown to the officers who faced this uh, disability. And that since it had granted an exemption for one set of officers, it had to grant an exemption for the other set of uh, officers. We think in general that's the right kind of way to think about uh, religious freedom. That it's not an all or nothing matter of either saying there's a presumption that any time someone says, well, I want to violate this particular law and I have a religious reason for doing so, that that person then has some claim to exemption from the law. Uh, or that uh, if the law is uh, um, generally applicable that it can then be applied uh, to uh, everybody and that people who are, who are, whose uh, exercises in some way, religious exercises burdened by the law have no claim whatsoever. The right question to ask is whether the state is showing equal regard for the um, uh, serious uh, commitments of persons, be they secular in character or religious in character, and if they're religious in character, be they mainstream or peripheral. I tell you about that case in order to come back to the comment that uh, Winnie Sullivan made about uh, whether or not this is genuinely a theory of religious um, uh, freedom. Uh, one might say in that case, well, this is just a theory about whether or not uh, the human freedom and human interests of these police officers should be accommodated or not. I suppose the reservation I have about this is that I think this kind of uh, protection is one that ought to be embraced by us, partly because what it does is provide a serious and substantial protection for real and important religious freedoms that people have. That in this particular case, what recommends uh, equal liberty to us is the fact uh, that it is actually effective in uh, answering uh, the claims of these officers and responding in a case where I think most people's intuition as they first hear it is, look, something is going wrong if the state is so disrespectful of religious concerns that this grooming regulation would prevent these officers from practicing uh, their religion. Uh, let me turn with that to um, uh, Marcy Hamilton's uh, comments about... Um, uh, the argument, um, I should say Marcy and I have been talking about these issues for an awfully long uh, time. I was wondering if she was going to say anything about this in her uh, remarks. Uh, full disclosure, Mar Marcy and I both clerked uh, um, at the Supreme Court during the term that the Smith decision, what she referred to as the peyote case, um, was handed down. She clerked for uh, Justice O'Connor. Uh, I clerked for uh, Justice Stevens. So at this point, our conversations about this uh, go back, what, about almost 20 years uh, now. I'm not sure either of us believe we still would have been arguing about uh, that particular case uh, two decades later, but it's an important case, and, and uh, uh, here we are. Um, Marcy recommended a series of 
principles, uh, and I'm not sure if there are uh, three or four of them uh, uh, here uh, that she suggested could be alternatives to our own. Uh, uh, One was an anti-persecution principle, another was a rule of law principle, then there was a no harm principle, and maybe separation was present as an additional principle to govern the establishment uh, clause uh, uh, cases. And part of her complaint, as I understood it, was uh, that uh, two things about the kind of equality of the equal membership principle that Larry Sager and I recommend. Uh, first of all, she suggested that in some sense that principle was too robust, that in fact uh, what we were uh, recommending, uh, as I understand it, might run afoul of the uh, no harm principle, and the equality principle that ought to be embraced should be uh, an anti-persecution principle, which would um, uh, eliminate certain kinds of vicious discrimination, but uh, would not be quite so ambitious as what it is that we are uh, recommending. And then secondly, she suggested that our more ambitious principle uh, might be difficult to uh, define and to apply, although she asked us to say a little bit uh, more, which I am always happy to do about uh, that. Um, so let me begin with the first of these and then move to the second. Uh, have we recommended an equality principle here that is uh, in some way um, uh, too robust? Uh, uh, well, I, I want to say two things to recommend it. Uh, the first thing I, I want to do is, is point out, we've said very little here about the Establishment Clause and what are normally thought of as Establishment Clause uh, issues. Uh, we think that one of the recommendations for thinking about equal liberty and the equal membership principle Uh, that we describe is that it handles well the free exercise uh, cases and the establishment clause uh, cases and does so under the same kind of principle rather than under very different principles. There are some people who think that free exercise and establishment are entirely different areas of law and and indeed that they are governed uh, by uh, inconsistent principles. So there are a number of law review articles that uh, uh, suggest that basically the message of the free exercise uh, clause is that uh, the state ought not to burden religion uh, too much, uh, whereas the, me- the message of the Establishment Clause is that it ought not to help religion uh, too much. So then you get into certain kinds of issues under this, and, and these articles freely concede it's that, that the two clauses then seem to collide with one another in uh, various cases. So for example, if the state grants a tax exemption to religious publications but not to other publications. Is the state declining to burden the publications, in which case this is in fact an implementation of the free exercise clause, or is it helping religious publications but not others, in which case it's a violation of the establishment clause? An oddity of this is that things that seem to be compelled into the free exercise clause end up being unconstitutional under the establishment clause. One can try to solve that problem by drawing various sorts of arbitrary lines, but we think a much better way to do that is to look at those two clauses and suppose, as one might do given that they appear right next to one another in the constitutional text, that they're not intended to be at war with one another or to express entirely divergent thoughts, but rather that the principles animating the one are the same as the principles animating the other. We think you can do that very well if the principle is not one that calls for very different treatment of religion, but for an uh, equality-based treatment. So with regard to establishment, uh, for example, we think some of the most powerful things about establishment have been said by uh, Justice O'Connor, for whom uh, uh, Marcy Clerk, who produced, this doesn't mean you have to agree, of course, with this particular part of her jurisprudence, but nevertheless produced what we think is one of the best statements of the equal membership principle as an explanation for what we're trying to 
uh, do with religious liberty. She said in a case about a creche display that the problem with creche displays sponsored by towns is that they send a message of exclusion to those believers who don't share uh, the uh, religious viewpoint that's been endorsed or manifested by the state. And that that, me- that message of exclusion or second-class membership it what, is what renders them unconstitutional. We think that's right as an analysis of how to think about uh, displays, uh, and we think more generally it states the one principle that's at the bottom of these two uh, clauses. So I wanted to say two things in response to Marcy's argument that we had in, embraced two robust and uh, equality principle. That's the first of them. That is one advantage of it is it unifies the constitutional treatment of religious liberty. The second is that I think it actually does describe accurately the way in which we ought to be thinking about these exemptions cases that have been the principal subject of the commentator's um, uh, remarks and uh, certainly something that we give a lot of attention to in the book. So let me at this point say a little bit more about this peyote case, which has been a landmark uh, in free exercise uh, law. This case arose out of the state of Oregon. Um, There's a a Native American religious ritual that involves the uh, ingestion of uh, peyote. Uh, Peyote is uh, a hallucinogen. Uh, It's um, also kind of noxious, as I understand it. The ingestion typically makes uh, people um, uh, ill. at the time that this, that this case, the Smith decision, was uh, decided, uh, peyote was a controlled substance under uh, federal law and under the laws of most states. It was also the case at this time, when this case came up, that uh, peyote uh, uh, was, um, that there was an exemption in the federal laws for peyote, that is, the federal laws specifically said that the use of peyote in Native American religious rituals uh, was not a violation of the controlled substance laws. And I think about 38 states had uh, the same exemption in their own laws. Uh, but Oregon did not have such an exemption. And there were two drug counselors employed by the state. Facts uh, could not have been worse for the uh, free exercise claimants. They were drug counselors employed by the uh, state. And they lost their jobs because they participated in one of these Native American Indian Uh, rituals uh, uh, which involved the use of an illegal substance, an illegal drug under uh, Oregon law, and they were fired. Eventually, this case comes up to the uh, uh, Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decides in a uh, highly contested uh, decision that any time the state has a neutral and generally applicable uh, law, the fact that some conduct is religiously motivated does not provide good grounds for an exemption claim. So they said... In fact, Oregon has a neutral and generally applicable law prohibiting the ingestion of peyote. The fact that the Native Americans had religious reasons for ingesting the peyote uh, doesn't uh, matter. One thing that did not come up in the case uh, was an interesting fact about other aspects of uh, Oregon uh, law. So uh, Oregon happens to have uh, what are called um, local option uh, dry laws. Uh, Oregon as a state is a state where you can obtain uh, um, alcohol um, uh, at this point, it's, it's also one of the great producers of Pinot Noir in the United States. But it's a, it has been for a long time a state where you can obtain alcohol. However, uh, Oregon has uh, a state law that permits counties uh, to choose uh, whether to uh, become uh, dry. Some counties have exercised uh, that option. Indeed, at least um, I happen to have grown up in Oregon. At the time that I was growing up in Oregon, the counties that now produce a lot of Pinot Noir had actually exercised that particular option. I don't know whether or not they remain uh, dry or uh, not. Uh, the, 
The Oregon provision allowing counties to do that, however, includes an exception. It says that if you become a dry county, you must nevertheless permit the use of wine for religious purposes because in uh, Christian religious uh, ceremonies and some Jewish religious uh, ceremonies, uh, wine plays an important role, and you have to have that exception in your uh, laws. This raises a, a question for uh, Larry Sager and for me about equal regard and whether or not Oregon has respected equal regard uh, in uh, such a case. Uh, that is, if it's making exceptions for mainstream religious believers from its controlled substance laws, which it is doing, does it have an obligation to make an exception for Native American religious worshipers who are a part of a less popular uh, or mainstream uh, religious uh, group? Now, I think that's a hard question to answer in this particular uh, case. Uh, uh, peyote is different from alcohol. Uh, there may be reasons to be more restrictive about uh, peyote than one is about uh, alcohol. It may be that this question is hard enough that we ought not to count on courts to answer it, but perhaps we ought to turn to legislatures to answer it. Nevertheless, I think that question, like the question about the Newark police officers, really is a question about how the government ought to be treating religious believers that courts ought to, uh, that we ought to answer as a constitutional matter, and that in many of these cases we ought to count on courts. Uh, to answer. So I would say as a second answer to what uh, Marcy has to say about uh, this claim of uh, equality is that uh, there's a reason to have a more robust equality principle than a mere anti-persecution uh, principle, and that reason is uh, that as we think about what it means to treat people uh, fairly and how best to interpret these abstract instructions in the uh, Constitution, this is a more attractive and appealing uh, interpretation. Let me just say one thing now uh, uh, in closing before um, uh, sitting down or letting us go to a break or uh, questions about uh, Marcy's second objection, which has to do with um, uh, the application of this particular uh, test. Uh, she says quite accurately that we say the relevant concern, the comparison that needs to be made is between how the government treats uh, religious interests that are the subject of a particular free exercise case and what we call comparably serious secular commitments or mainstream religious uh, commitments. Uh, and she asks about that. Well, how are we to identify what kinds of commitments um, uh, count for these uh, purposes? How do we know what kind of comparison ought to be uh, made? We agree that in some circumstances uh, this can be a very difficult um, uh, comparison to make, and it can be a very difficult test to apply. As I said at the beginning of my remarks, these are genuinely hard questions, and it's not our promise in recommending this approach that hard cases will suddenly become easy. Some of them will remain uh, quite hard. <clears throat> On the other hand, I hope it's already clear from the kinds of examples that I've given that this really is not an insuperable problem. So in the case of uh, the Newark police officers, the interest in being able to be a police officer when you have folliculitis is a very different kind of interest in some ways from the interest in being a police officer when you are a worshiping Muslim. And if we had to answer the metaphysical question of whether or not the importance to Muslims of not shaving was comparable to the importance of um, uh, people with folliculitis in not shaving, uh, I think we'd be in some kind of a quandary. I wouldn't know how to weigh those two uh, things. But I don't think it matters for the comparison that a court has to make in that case which of those interests is weightier, more serious, or more profound. All we need to know about the comparison in those cases is that if Newark really has this rule with no exceptions in it, 
It would prohibit both sets of police officers from being able to pursue their chosen vocation, and in this case, a vocation uh, that involves them in an important kind of public service. We need not work out an exact calculus of utilities, in other words, to compare the interests of folliculitis sufferers with the interests of Muslims. Likewise, in the case of uh, Oregon and its controlled substance uh, laws, one could, I suppose, get into some kind of argument about the relative importance of the peyote ceremony and the communion ceremony in weighing these two kinds of <laughs> cases. I don't think that that is necessary. And more generally, I don't think that those kinds of comparisons will be necessary because what we're asking for here is an assessment by courts not of exactly the weight of these interests as opposed to the interests of the state, which in fact was what courts are asked to do under the conventional test. Instead, what we are asking courts to do is to examine the stance of the state. Is it being respectful of the religious interests at stake in the same way that we expect it to be respectful of other serious human commitments? I would be happy to talk about other uh, examples and indeed to entertain all sorts of other uh, questions after we've all had a chance uh, for a break. But uh, from right now, I'll have to rest on those answers, although I know a lot has gone unaddressed. I'll start over again. Um, my question is primarily for the provost, but for all of the panelists. And you, you said that the book was not intended to sort of go off the text of the First Amendment per se and check various letters and writings that various framers wrote. Um, at the same time, on page 308, you, um, you have a footnote to, a, to an essay that you wrote called Madison's Wager. So on, on that basis uh, in the book, I'll, I'll ask you about some of the thinking of James Madison. Um, and he probably once inhabited the office that you're in or something like that. Um, Madison stressed that, um, that even three pence of government funding for religion is a step toward the Inquisition and that it's dangerous to use um, religion as an engine of social policy in his famous memorial and remonstrance. And I raise that in the context of the alleged compromise by one of your you know, uh, law and religion colleagues, Noah Feldman, who, who recently wrote uh, that the, the solution to America's religious divisiveness is to tolerate the funding of, um, or tolerate public religious symbols, but to reject all forms of public funding of religion. And that, it seems to me, at least the second part, would put you in contradiction to, um, it seems like you're accepting Everson and various other funding programs for religion. And, um, you know, in the, in the sense of, you know, promoting what's good and just, um, how do you reconcile that with some of the themes of, of Madison? And uh, not necessarily to interpret the First Amendment, but in, in response to his particular points. Okay, yes, and, and I, I should emphasize, I, uh, I don't see anything wrong with appealing to the uh, framers on the ground that they were, for example, uh, good political uh, theorists and that therefore it's important to take their views uh, seriously. It's just that I don't think that their uh, practices and expectations ought to govern our <coughs> interpretation of uh, the words that they put into the constitutional text. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say something about uh, Madison. And let me begin by, by first confirming that, that you're right about what our interpretation is of the um, uh, establishment uh, clause. That is, uh, not only are we uh, willing to approve of situations like the one in Everson, which was actually a case from uh, Ewing, New Jersey, uh, down the road, and the first really important establishment clause case uh, decided in the Supreme Court, um, and which involved um, 
the provision of school bus transportation effectively for students uh, attending Catholic schools. The Supreme Court said there, well, you're not allowed to uh, have uh, government dollars uh, going to uh, religion, but they said uh, after a lot of fancy prose about the importance of a high wall of separation between church and state, they said, well, actually, this program is okay because there are no government dollars going to religion. The government dollars are going for transportation, not for uh, uh, religion. Uh, not only are we willing to embrace programs like uh, that one, but uh, part of what we say, although neither Larry nor I is a fan as a policy matter of voucher programs, uh, we say that a voucher program appropriately designed that would actually uh, allow parents the choice to use federal dollars for tuition either at a secular private school or on the same terms a religious private school uh, would be okay with us. Uh, so how do we reconcile that with uh, what it is that uh, Madison had to say in the memorial and remonstrance. Uh, I, I think uh, there are um, um, the, the main answer to that, although there are a couple, the main answer to that is that Madison in the memorial and remonstrance is, is dealing with a levy that uh, was uh, allowed people to direct uh, their uh, taxes effectively to uh, a variety of religions, but was specifically designed for the support of uh, religious uh, teaching. So in one respect, we agree with him. That is, even a very modest benefit that was designed only to benefit religion uh, would be a, uh, a benefit uh, that we would regard as a problem from the standpoint of religious freedom because it would be inconsistent with um, uh, equal liberty. So if the state were to say vouchers, even of a trivial amount, will be available or tax relief will be available only to parents who send their children to religious private schools but not to secular ones, uh, then we would agree with Madison that the amount uh, doesn't matter. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if what the state is doing is supplying these benefits on uh, equal terms, I don't think there's a violation of the principle that Madison uh, expressed at uh, that point. And indeed, I think that in modern circumstances, at times, uh, to deny the capacity of the state ever to send dollars to um, uh, programs not favoring religion but that eventually benefiting religion would leave religion at a um, uh, disadvantage. Can I? Oh, I'm, yes, please, if any of the rest of the panel... I might as well go, keep on with the questions. Yeah, okay. With that question? Do you, do no, you object to that? Let's have more, some more questions. Okay. Uh, in your book and, and talk today, you, you uh, refer us to our intuitions and our instincts as to how to sort of judge uh, where you come out on the issues. And it seemed to me that that, that you know, will more or less appeal to uh, what you might call the intellectual, intellectual demographic of the room today, uh, and probably anybody likely to read the book. I was wondering uh, if you did a, a nationwide poll of, you know, the country broad, broadly, uh, uh, whether you think that the intuitions and instincts would be the same on those issues, and if they weren't, would you say that you need to change the book, or would you say those people need to spend more time in school? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, it's an interesting uh, uh, question. I. Uh, I I think I'd say neither of those two things, uh, actually. Um, uh, so let me, let me explain why and then come back to that uh, uh, answer. Um, I think it's true that the intuitions in the uh, polity will be um, 
different from the, the intuitions in the scope of this room. So one of the claims on which the book uh, depends is that um, uh, it would be a mistake to think that the point of the religion clauses were to establish a, a Christian nation and that we should uh, interpret them uh, in some way that was designed to privilege uh, Christianity. And I, 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 if I get up in front of this particular uh, room and, and say that uh, it is important that we embrace this kind of uh, pluralism and treat uh, different religions uh, uh, equal, equally, and if I offer a case uh, that highlights uh, the Santerians or uh, Islamic uh, faiths, as you suggest, uh, I'm counting on the fact that uh, most people in the room will be nodding along and saying, yes, actually, it's right that we care about faith in general rather than we care about some particular faith. Uh, I don't know how different the nation as a whole uh, uh, is from that. On this, I would uh, defer to some of my uh, colleagues who know more about the sociology of religion uh, than I do, but it's certainly clear that we wouldn't have unanimity on that proposition in the uh, country. There are some people who would say, well, in fact, we ought to be uh, privileging certain kinds of orientations toward uh, religious faith. And indeed, Justice Scalia, in one of his uh, opinions in one of the Ten Commandment cases um, uh, two years ago, uh, uh, said uh, with great uh, confidence and um, uh, that um, uh, there was no reason to think that the uh, Constitution uh, paid any attention uh, to the interests of polytheists or uh, atheists, that in, in his view, in other words, it was perfectly right to treat their spiritual commitments with less regard than the spiritual commitments of um, monotheists. Uh, so uh, the arguments of the book will have less traction with somebody who doesn't find attractive the idea that in general we really ought to be treating seriously the spiritual commitments that people have without regard to their uh, foundation. We recognize that in the book. There are various pages where we say, look, we are, we are assuming certain kinds of intuitions. We think they are broadly held and not just in a room like uh, this one. So it does strike me as uh, remarkable uh, right now that sectarian divisions have waned uh, to a point where uh, the presence of uh, uh, five Catholics and two Jews on the Supreme Court, which really would have been unthinkable, I, I would say, you know, even 40 years ago when John Kennedy was running for president and being questioned about his Catholicism uh, is now uh, taken for uh, uh, granted in some sense by uh, the country or uh, a country where George Bush, even in the wake of uh, 9-11 and despite the controversialness of his policies, uh, can get up and encourage Americans uh, to be protective of women of cover, his term, as they uh, venture out into the world at a time when there's uh, discrimination. I think we do have widespread recognition right now for the importance of uh, other people's uh, faiths and other people's uh, commitment. But it's true, insofar as people reject that, uh, our argument uh, here uh, doesn't give them a reason uh, to believe that. And I think what I would have to do if I wanted to sustain the argument further is get into some more philosophical arguments about why is it that we ought to care about uh, other people's convictions in the way that we care about our own. Why is this the right way to participate in a plural uh, republic. Uh, I would hope that I could convince some people by those arguments, but there would be others who, on the basis of their very deeply felt uh, um, religious or other convictions, uh, would think that that's uh, wrong. Uh, just representing the sociology of religion, uh, there was a poll done a couple of years ago, I believe, by the Barna Institute. Is that? Mm -hmm. I always get that mixed up with Sarna, but he teaches at Brandeis, not somebody else. <laughs> um, on this particular question, and a huge chunk of the population, I don't know if or the, the polling group, uh, I don't know if it was quite 50%, thought that the idea of separation was a bad idea. 
But there's, but you, there's also, I mean, Bob Withnell would know this better than I do, but there's substantial data that the broadly described conservative Christian community in this country, at least in the sort of rank and file, not at the leader, the elite level necessarily, um, believes in tolerance, believes that people's religious uh, faiths ought to be taken seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, there might be some points at which there were... Um, issues about, for example, uh, gay marriage and sort of neurotic sort of points in this. But broadly speaking, um, I think that uh, the, the so-called conservative right wing of, of the evangelical Christians believe that everyone, you know, everyone's religion ought to be respected, and that's what America's about. I mean, I think that's very, very broadly held. Let's take another question uh, in the back. Uh, yeah, uh, this is Professor, uh, for Professor Eisgruber. Um, so I take it that two virtues of your book, just hearing about it today, is that it tries to bring together the exercise and establishment clauses under this principle, and that it is trying to treat uh, religion qua religion as not constitutionally anomalous. But maybe just help me think about this in terms of the examples you gave all involved comparative treatments, such that the Oregon case, the Newark case, and the Hialeah case all had you know, examples where the state was seemed to be privileging or not privileging or not being equal. Just, this may be a simple question, but what if those dry counties said Catholics can't do this uh, and the Indians, the Native Americans can't do this, or the um, Santeria religion can't do this, neither can the uh, pork dealers in downtown Florida, uh, Miami, or something like that. Would that be a case then that the legislators would just become involved and the court doesn't get interested in that, or would that also be an example where you think there might be uh, constitutional concerns um, that citizens would have redress. And I guess, I'm not sure how related this is, but I'm interested to hear your perspective on what I saw as a tension between Professor Sullivan's comment about religious freedom historically having been only for religions we like and Professor Hamilton's more benign view that separation has been wonderful for the oppressed and powerless um, in becoming um, actually more mainstreamed. Okay, good. So there, there are um, uh, two good questions there. Uh, the, the first of them about uh, how these uh, comparisons figure in the uh, structure of our theory, and then the second about the um, about uh, how, what religious freedom has been good for, and these these two contrasting uh, views. Let me take them in order. Um, first, with, with regard to the question about the comparisons and the question about whether or not our theory would, as some people have said to us, license an equally suppressive uh, state. As long as you're willing to repress all views equally, everybody uh, loses, and um, uh, what then? Um, uh, I want to say a little bit about the structure of the examples we see and why they're, why they're not accidental in response to that. So some of the cases that uh, we can talk about are relatively uh, easy cases, and others require people to reach further um, a field. In the uh, Newark police officer case, one of the reasons that I like to uh, use that example is because, remarkably enough, there's a religious interest that you might think has no secular corollary, which not only turns out to have a secular corollary, but it's actually been asserted uh, in the case. So from a lawyer's standpoint, if that case comes into your office, if you're a First Amendment uh, lawyer and the Newark police officers uh, show up, you're delighted because not only do you have a legal principle under which you can argue uh, equal liberty, uh, but you actually have terrific facts and evidence. Um, 
the Oregon case is a bit more uh, removed uh, uh, from that. There was no exception to the peyote regulation in uh, Oregon. But if you look further afield in the law, uh, you can find other kinds of um, uh, exceptions from other controlled substance laws. And then the argument is a bit more difficult, and it may mean that you don't win in, uh, in court. Um, uh, there are other examples where, again, the exemptions are, um, are further afield. Uh, there's a series of cases involving uh, Jewish basketball players who want to wear yarmulkes with their uniforms, and some state athletic associations have prohibited them from playing uh, because the yarmulkes don't meet the uniform code. Well, virtually nobody else has to wear a small hat on their uh, head, but some people do have to wear eyeglasses if they're going to play, and normally the state will accommodate that by putting, saying that the eyeglasses have to be held in place and they have to meet certain kinds of regulations, and indeed the outcome of these disputes has been to require clips on the uh, yarmulkes in the end. Um, You won't always have Uh, exceptions within the uh, particular law, and I think under some circumstances, if the uh, state is uh, unwilling to make uh, exceptions, uh, the the courts ought not to grant an exception. I think, in fact, one of the um, uh, virtues of this approach is that it recognizes in some cases, unlike the ones that I've just been uh, describing, exceptions aren't there because the whole point of the law is to spread burdens fairly. So if you read Marcy's book, for example, you'll find out that a lot of the cases that uh, arise under this exemptions framework have to deal with uh, zoning ordinances, and churches seek exemptions from uh, zoning ordinances, and often they seek exemptions for things that have secular counterparts where no such exemption was granted to uh, secular claimants. And under those circumstances, our theory would say quite clearly, uh, unlike the theories that Marcy uh, criticizes in her uh, book that the churches ought not to get an exemption uh, either when the comparable secular interests are not getting exemptions. We think that's a virtue because zoning laws are different from the grooming ordinances, uh, for example, that I was talking about earlier. Zoning laws are all about burdening people and trying to share those burdens equitably. And something really does go wrong under the no harm principle if you say that religious institutions and religious ones alone are um, uh, exempted. On the other hand, the grooming cases begin to look very odd when you start looking at these examples because what's happening in those cases is the state, either out of hostility or perhaps out of neglect, is simply failing to take into account a kind of interest that it would take into account were it secular or uh, mainstream. Now, our theory does depend on the idea that you'll have some sorts of comparisons to advert to in those kinds of cases. But I don't think the existence of those comparisons is a kind of accident. On the contrary, it's a part of the fact that we're living in a well-functioning constitutional regime. That is, there would be something very strange about our laws if in a country of very heterogeneous interests, and this is a very diverse uh, country, if you ended up with laws that were not making exemptions for hardships of some kind or another. And indeed, in virtually all of these cases that I've seen, there are comparisons to make there. Uh, w- when there aren't, I think there are counterfactual kinds of questions that you can ask to try to get at this, although it gets um, harder. But it, the, the, the short version of that is that we don't think that the availability of these comparisons is um, accidental, and we do think that in some cases um, the, the fact that, that no exemption claim will be recognized is actually a virtue of the theory because it recognizes that the laws are trying to share burdens rather than imposing them by mistake. The second part of your uh, question uh, is about um, uh, the different characterizations that my uh, colleagues Winnie and Marcy have uh, given about the effect of religious freedom law. I I think in a certain sense both of them are right about what it is that they've said and they've described uh, different pieces of the elephant, uh, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, Marcy talked about how uh, separation has um, 
created what some people call um, a uh, free market of uh, faiths that has, among uh, other things, allowed uh, faiths which would be unpopular um, or might not receive the favor of the state uh, to flourish. I think that is fundamental to uh, the vitality of religion uh, in the United States. And I should say, our criticism of separation is not a criticism of disestablishment or its benefits for uh, religion. Our criticism of separation is that in all these cases we've been talking about now, saying that church and state should be separate really doesn't tell you anything interesting about the uh, case. When there are police officers with beards who don't want to shave saying, well, church and state should be separate, well, these police officers who are religious want to serve on a state police force. Separation doesn't answer the question. But disestablishment is a very important part of the uh, picture. On the other hand, I think Winnie was talking about a set of litigated cases, that is the cases that actually reach the court, where I think, uh, if I'm understanding this point correctly, she's absolutely right that, especially until recently, um, uh, very rarely did faiths win in those uh, cases. And some people have said, well, the only time that faiths really won was when they seemed um, um, uh, sympathetic um, or, uh, in some cases, even quaint. So the Amish are Winners. I'm not sure this is true about the Jehovah's Witnesses, but... Uh, well, I do think that, that, it, that a lot of the cases are trivial or uh, innocuous, and that the really serious discrimination is something that doesn't ever get litigated. Um, and this involves uh, marriage laws, uh, whole, uh, laws that you, you don't, don't look religious, and that the, that the ways in which uh, religions, minority religions, are controlled in this country is not by discriminatory legislation, but by the whole by a whole set of legislation, majority, majoritarian legislation that, that controls, uh, controls their behavior. Could I just say one thing about the Beard case? Because I think one of the things that's very interesting about the Beard case is that if you're, if you're, if you're a student of religion, um, it's not surprising that there should be these paired cases. Religion is not something totally other that has nothing to do with human behavior. The reason that religious customs grow up is because they are very closely related to the way people live their lives and that it is natural to find. And so the problem I would have with giving special privileges to religion is that you're going to have, as you certainly have in the um, uh, Islamic headscarf cases, a continuum from what may look secular in terms of the folliculitis. And of course, the folliculitis case has a race, racial com component, which is very important to, to rate. I mean, I, I believe that folliculitis is, is, is a particular issue for African-American men. And so that adds another dimension to the sort of discriminatory aspect of that legislation. But things like hats and head coverings and, and this whole continuum, food practices, they're secular, they're sacred, they, it's, there's a continuum, and, and it's very hard to say where the, Just sorry. Well, no, I just want to say about the Jehovah's Witnesses, their litigation from 38 to the mid-60s, when they were able to use uh, free speech arguments, they were overwhelmingly successful. When they relied entirely on religion, they were uniformly unsuccessful. On their theory? On Chris's theory, it seems like clerics should not have any tax exemptions. They shouldn't have any tax exemptions from personal income tax, for example. I, I think a lot of the tax exemptions for clergy in particular are uh, suspect. Now, I think what one would have to uh, look at I, with, with exemptions for 
um, uh, churches, for example, I think it's very important that they are part of a group, for example, in uh, uh, Section 501c3 that includes uh, importantly, uh, from my standpoint, educational uh, institutions and uh, other artistic and charitable uh, institutions. And I think the state can uh, provide accommodation for all of those. I don't think an exemption tailored only to the, the clergy, and I know there are some, is um, uh, constitutional unless you can make some sort of equality-related argument in its favor. You know, I, I don't think that the uh, equal regard theory is quite as comfortable with the neutral, generally applicable law as you indicate, because there are points in the book where you do seem to come up against that's just not fair, even when uh, the, it's only the religious that are getting the burden. Um, but I, So let me just pose to Chris just a quick question, and that is uh, it's equal regard. And uh, so do you think the O Central case was decided correctly? Right? Now, th this is a case involving Huasca tea, which is an illegal uh, federal substance that a, a small religious group uses. And it's a, it's a Religious Freedom Restoration Act case, so let's, let's leave that to the side. The whole analysis in the case was, if the Native American church gets peyote, why can't they get the tea? Is that how you yes. would, you think that's right? And here's why I think that's wrong. Um, I, I just think that's the wrong focus. The, the question should not be, these individuals got an exemption, so why don't these individuals get an exemption? The question should be from the point of view of the public policy, right? So should the, should the government give an exemption for peyote? Well, why not? It's a crummy drug, gives you a stomach ache. Uh, nobody wants to use it for fun. Uh, should they give an exemption for Hawaska? Well, at one point, I was like, why not? Where's the harm? Then I started getting emails from the leader of the group in South America telling me uh, how great this drug is and why don't I try it? And I said, no, thanks. <laughs> and then I said the question I always ask. I said, by the way, are children taking that drug? Uh, because that might make a difference in my view. And he said, well, of course children are taking that drug. We encourage adolescents to both use this and marijuana because it makes it a much easier adolescence. And I responded by saying, one, abuse. Two, it's easier for you. Right? I'd love to drug my kids right now, 11 to 15. <laughs> but, see, he, the, but, so the question is, what's the public policy? So I would ask, from the legislative perspective, what's the public policy, not just what's, what does the individual need? And I think that's what's wrong with mandatory exemptions. I think that's what's wrong with equality. The focus on the individual without looking to the public policy is a mistake. So. And the Rastafarians didn't get marijuana. No, they didn't. No, they called me too. <laughs> So uh, let, let me say a little bit about why I think, why, why I think that the Otrentro case is, in fact, uh, uh, rightly decided. First, Marcy, I, I think, as I indicated with regard to the peyote decision, I, these are the right kinds of questions to ask. The fact that there's an exemption to a provision about um, uh, alcohol doesn't mean that there should be an exemption about peyote, right? You need to know something about peyote. So someone came up to me as we were on the break outside and said, how can you say that those two things are comparable? Alcohol is um, uh, a, a commonly used substance, and you're talking about a hallucinogen. Well, I said, as you did, actually, from what I understand about peyote, uh, it's unlikely to become a uh, serious uh, drug problem, and indeed our problems around alcohol are considerably more uh, severe than any problems that result from uh, 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 kind of the, the spinoff effect of what is now an exemption for peyote that exists entirely within federal law. So it's an entirely relevant question to ask about WASCA as well. And then the question is, all right, should a court, when confronted with this uh, claim, uh, defer this to the legislature or 
uh, should the court decide it itself based on its own uh, judgments about this. And even if the constitutional principle is, hey, this is the right question to ask, you might think maybe that should be in the legislature. The reason I think that uh, all nine justices agreed in the Ocentro case that there ought to be an exemption is that they were, in fact, acting at the behest of a statute, as you say, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, about which you and I both have some reservations, uh, but which basically says to courts, look, we want you to take the more aggressive view, not necessarily as a constitutional matter here, but as a statutory uh, matter, because Congress said when enacting this, in fact, legislatures frequently underestimate the, um, we, the Congress, say that legislatures frequently underestimate uh, the interests of uh, religious minorities, so we want you judges to be aggressive about this. I think in that context, this was perfectly appropriate in its aggressiveness, and of course, it's a statutory decision and could be reversed. My guess would be that this is not uh, quite so bad a practice as, as the email suggests, but we'll see what the, what the spinoff is. <laughs> I, I'm, can I ask another question related to that? The um, Native American church is restricted in its membership in many states, uh, so I couldn't just decide or have a conversion experience and decide I'm a member of the Native American church. So does that change the notion of the fairness of the exemption if there is an exemption for alcohol because anybody can become a Catholic? No, I, I don't think it um, uh, does at all. Um, uh, I, I should say one of the things that makes the, the actual peyote case interesting, and for those, those who want to read more about it, there's a book by a University of Oregon law professor named uh, Garrett Epps called To an Unknown God that really goes into the facts of this, but it was a little unclear exactly how serious the membership of the plaintiffs were in um, uh, Smith. But, I, but the answer to the question is no, it, it, it doesn't uh, uh, matter uh, First of all, it's very important as a constitutional uh, matter that religions have the capacity to define um, their own uh, membership. And indeed, this is true not just of the Native American church, but of various others which could, for example, excommunicate uh, members. What matters is that people who have a religious uh, conviction uh, uh, be treated with the same regard or respect uh, that those who have other religious convictions or secular commitments uh, receive. Now, one thing that would be a real mistake on the part of a court would be to say about somebody, well, look, you claim, and this might actually have happened in the Smith case, you claim to be a practitioner of the Native American religion, but they don't recognize you as a practitioner. Therefore, it's their judgment about whether or not you're entitled to this uh, exception. That would seem to me to be a huge error. That is, if the person asserts, I am practicing this kind of uh, religion, it shouldn't matter that some church says, well, actually, we don't count him as one of us. It's the question is, is it for you, in fact, a religious conviction? Let's get another question into the mix. Uh, over, over here, uh, one or the other. Yeah. Um, so my question is about exemptions, and I was just kind of confused about sort of the theoretical underpinning of the justification for exemptions within the law more generally. And so one kind of way that you could look at exemptions um, would be the way that like Brian Berry looks at ex exemptions, right? Where he would say, wait, if you're granting exemptions for um, people not having to shave uh, because of like religious things, then maybe this is just a dumb law in general and we shouldn't have it at all. And so insofar as this law can be violated or this rule can be violated um, on the basis of religious claims, then probably it shouldn't be a, a rule more generally that's restricting people's liberty. Or you could go the Dworkin way, which says, insofar as you're like granting these objections um, in the law, then you're kind of like undermining the large-scale integrity of the law. And one of the things that law does is coordinate our behavior in a way that it's kind of predictable for us in this way. And if you're just going to be like granting exemptions in this way, 
then you kind of undermined what the law is supposed to do in general, which is to like uh, provide us with standards that are predictable. But if you are going to take the exemptions line, then it's unclear to me what the criteria is for exemptions. And so perhaps you could take some kind of like individualistic autonomy-based stand on the criteria for exemptions, which says like if people can make extremely convincing, and this seems to be where the, the weightiness criteria was going, if people can make very convincing arguments about what the criteria is for these exemptions, then we will grant exemptions, but only if it is such a sufficiently weighty claim. But then I'm not clear on what the value of putting this in terms of religion is more specifically, because I can imagine that if Rob here is a Native American studies major or something like that, and he really wants to do peyote so that he can like, see his spirit animal and like, write his dissertation about his spirit animal, like, it seems like he has a very weighty claim to that as well. But then again, if we're going to be pegging it on this weightiness claim so that it will have this kind of correlative relationship to religion in some way, then it seems like you just have these individualistic assumptions or exemptions that you can let into the law as well. And then again, it doesn't seem like it's doing what we would expect law to be doing. And so I was just very, I was wondering if you could talk more about the role that exemptions are playing in theoretical underpinnings, A, for justifying exemptions within the law, and then what the criteria of those exemptions would be theoretically. Okay, good. Um, well, I, I should begin by saying I don't accept either the Barry view or the, the Dworkin view, as you've uh, characterized it, about what laws uh, do. It seems to me that um, legislation is something that has to uh, accommodate a broad range of uh, interests, and sometimes the best way to uh, affect a public policy or uh, accomplish the uh, set of uh, objectives that a legislature has will be to um, uh, create a very... Um, uh, general provision with no exemptions, but in other circumstances, um, it won't. So let me run through some of these examples and, and just suggest why I think that's um, uh, so. Uh, it might be the case in uh, uh, Newark uh, that the regulation is just um, a silly one. I, you know, the, the, the prohibition on uh, beards on police officers strikes me as a kind of unnecessary um, uh, uh, provision, and so that makes Brian Berry's argument uh, look good. But I suppose we take, for example, the basketball players who have also got uh, uniforms that they are supposed to wear and certain things that they can't um, have uh, as ornaments of one kind um, uh, or another. Um, uh, there are reasons why basketball players wear uh, uniforms. There are reasons why you want them to look more or less the same when they're out on the court. There are also reasons why you want to prohibit them from wearing other things. Those are uh, safety-related reasons, and it's hard to think of all the things that you might want them to wear and not want them uh, uh, to wear. Um, uh, I, the, on the other hand, there, you also want to be able to make sure that uh, players can compete even if they have constraints on their uh, capacity to pursue their personal good, like having to wear uh, eyeglasses or being part of a religion that uh, puts obligations on you to wear things that others uh, don't have. So it seems to me that's one example, even with a grooming regulation, of where there are legitimate interests in having a rule, but there are also legitimate interests in making exceptions to it. When you get to things like zoning, uh, I think it becomes even more clear that there are a lot of different interests that have to be accommodated. So zoning laws, state rules, and they make lots of exceptions to those rules. So the state of New York, for example, says residential neighborhoods are defined in a certain kind of way. You exclude all sorts of entities that could have large parking lots from those residential neighborhoods. We understand why they're doing that, but they say churches and schools are different. From my standpoint, it's rather important that it's both churches and 
schools. But I think you can understand, in looking at zoning laws, why you would want to have a rule that prohibits too much traffic from occurring in a residential neighborhood, but, but why you might want um, traffic for certain kinds of uses that are differently related to a residential um, uh, neighborhood. Uh, so it seems to me too confining to think that laws ought to state broad principles. They're accommodating interests, and sometimes the interests will be complicated in a way where you want the benefits of a general rule and then you want exemptions to go um, uh, with it. Uh, the, the next uh, question you ask is, assuming that I get to this view, and you may not think that I've adequately justified it, but assuming I get to a view that makes sense of the reason why we have, as I said earlier, laws that are just shot through with uh, uh, exemptions is... is um, what am I saying, really, about under what circumstances we ought to have um, an exemption? And, and all I'm saying about it is that uh, the exemption, the burdens imposed by a general rule and a scheme of exemptions uh, ought to be fairly uh, shared. And I know I need to say a little bit more about that. But, but let me first distinguish it from the argument that the traditional approach to these issues adopts. The traditional approach says courts ought to decide whether or not the interest in having the exemption looked at by itself outweighs the interest in having a general rule. I think that is a very difficult decision for a court to make because I think it really gets at exactly what legislatures do, which is to craft this scheme of general rules and exemptions in a way that accommodates a broad range of interests. The question about fairness really is an appropriate one for courts to think about. It's the kind of claim that we count on courts to vindicate. Now, you end by asking me uh, what I should do with uh, Rob, who uh, you hypothesize uh, needs to participate in this ritual uh, in order to um, uh, uh, effectuate a purpose of the highest order, which is to complete his dissertation uh, uh, research. Um, you know, I, I agree. There are a set of uh, hard cases here of which this is um, a good example, and I think there are two ways to go about it. And at this point, I'm a bit agnostic about what to, to do with it. One is to say, well, that's that's an entirely appropriate example. And if you tell me enough about that to make it seem uh, serious enough, I might agree that there's something um, uh, there that is that uh, the right kind of um, intellectual uh, interest or, or philosophic interest ought to be treated just like um, uh, religious uh, interest for these uh, purposes. There, there's a second path that would say, actually, uh, the seriousness that we're talking about or the weightiness of the uh, con uh, commitments pertains to a different kind of interest than the one that you're talking about with regard to um, uh, Rob. So this view would say, look, either with regard to religious commitments or with regard to sort of health care interests or with regard to secular moral commitments, they are effectively constraints on one's ability to pursue one's own well-being. That is, as a member of a religious faith, there may be certain things that you have to do by virtue of the, your membership in the religion uh, by virtue of having a disability, such as an inability to shave, there are certain things that you can't do. By virtue of having certain kinds of secular moral uh, convictions, such as a secular vegetarianism or a secular pacifism, you are constrained, again, from certain kinds of choices that you might otherwise make about your well-being. If one wanted to limit the view more, one could go that second way. And I think we're, we're ambiguous at this point and somewhat agnostic about which of those two directions to pursue. Could I just comment on your 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 contrast? You're talking about the individualism, and and naturally um, for lawyers, the idea that we would be making you know every would bring the whole place to a stop if every single person got to make the kind of argument that you're making on behalf of your friend there. Um, it, I think it's interesting that Brian Barry's exception to is the um, helmet law in England, right? And he he concedes that. Um, 
parliamentary exemption for Sikhs uh, for the par uh, for the uh, uh, as an exemption from the is necessary as sort of historical. It's kind of an affirmative action. It's a recognition of um, British. Uh, colonialism in a sense, and that that's appropriate as a kind of historical reparation, um, which, is a, which is yet another kind of exemption. I mean, it seems to me that the ind that highly individualized exemption of the kind that you mention is most notable in the conscientious objector cases, and that it's appropriate there, that there should be an individual hearing on every single person who says that it's, it's going to violate their personality in some way to go to war. And the stakes there are the highest, and therefore it's worth that kind of individualized attention. But that for most of these other cases, that would, that would be not the case. I mean, that would, that would be one way to think about it. That's a, that conscientious objector case is a great example because ultimately what's permitted by the Supreme Court is the individual, but the, the guy who says, I'm not going to Vietnam because of the Catholic just war theory is told he can't pick and choose among his wars, even if it's a... Catholic tradition of long-standing. So the institutional identity uh, is uh, discounted, but the individual uh, desires uh, recognized. I, I, I want to uh, make more crisp the differences between the approaches uh, for exemptions uh, between Chris and myself, because I think it, it will aid the discussion somewhat. For, for Chris, he is not going to say that a religious exemption is appropriate because of the value per se of religious liberty, right? But I would, right? I think the reason religious exemptions are appropriate is because religious liberty is of value. But where I part ways from those like Michael McConnell and those in his camp who would have mandatory exemptions, which Chris also disagrees with, is that it's a system of ordered liberty. And so the question for exemption cannot be determined without considering the way we make our decisions, which is in the context of Republican democracy, it's a concept of r the rule of law and the no harm principle. So mandatory exemption stops at the principle and says religious liberty is good, here you go. And that's what would you know, get uh, a right. And the way we define a religion, your, your dissertation might be a religion. We, we have such a broad definition of, uh, of that. But, the mistake in that mandatory exemption approach, in my view, is not a failure to acknowledge uh, equality as a principle, but rather the mistake is not taking into account the larger public interests that have to be weighed over and against. So if you have a rule like uh, Newark did, in which you're willing to take an exemption for hair, uh, folliculitis, and you're not for religious purposes, what you've shown is you can tolerate exceptions, that the, the, your rule is perfectly acceptable with some exceptions in place. Uh, and it's fine for the system to work like that. That's a good thing for the system to work like that, but you're going to have to admit that the religious exceptions are going to have to be okay too. Now, if it gets to the point where you've got so many religious exceptions, you've got so many folliculitis guys all in the same uh, group, and you think it's a very important policy, then as a matter of public policy, nobody gets the exception. And I think what Chris is saying, he's not terribly uncomfortable with nobody getting the exception uh, in certain circumstances, uh, but I'm perfectly comfortable with nobody getting the exception if the public policy has outweighed the otherwise very highly valuable interest in religious liberty itself. I think we should give Rob a chance, uh, since you've been made an object, to uh, <laughs> ask a question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my question is for the entire panel, but it was inspired uh, by a distinction that uh, Professor Sullivan drew in her remarks. Um, 
I'm curious about what the place is for non-believers in a system of religious liberty. Um, so, in our remarks, Professor Sullivan suggested that um, perhaps what we should be looking for is um, religion as a sort of general category of human experience that is worth uh, valorizing and protecting. Uh, but it seems to me that there are a variety of people, both uh, committed believers and committed non-believers, who would reject this. Specifically, you might have a committed atheist uh, who has read Plato's Euthyphro or Lucretius, and she justifies her atheism on moral grounds, and for this reason, uh, rejects faith and divinity. And she will be reluctant to acknowledge that the basis of her normative beliefs is shared in any way with the committed theist. Likewise, a committed sectarian the theist will probably not want to acknowledge um, or defend the claim that the source of her beliefs uh, is anything that the atheist uh, participates in in any uh, credible way. Um, if this is the case, um, it, it seems to me, on what basis um, do we include non-believers in a system of ordered religious liberty, uh, if indeed we do it all? Um, because if we acknowledge that the atheist um, has um, a system of normative beliefs which are worth uh, protecting, it seems like the basis for that is on the basis of the atheist being a person who has certain moral powers. Uh, but if that's the baseline, uh, then that seems to threaten the institutional identities that are held by a variety of theists, um, and they might be worried that their institutional identities thus um, are not seen by the state when it decides whether or not to grant religious exemptions. And that threatens the... Uh, seems to me that that would threaten the, the system of, of equal liberty that's being posited here. So, and to me that suggests the need for um, a robust uh, separation thesis of the kind that uh, Professor Hamilton is trying to motivate, uh, because uh, this, uh, if we follow her argument, uh, atheists, whom polls suggest are more unpopular than any unpopular religious group in the United States, would also at least have the possibility of participating in this uh, almost miraculous story of unpopular faiths or unpopular creeds in the U.S. gaining acceptance or toleration over time um, because of the fact that government regulation does not single out creedal groups for persecution. So simply put, um, what is the basis for including people who are not religious in a system of religious liberty, if, if, if the equality in question is predicated on uh, a multiplicity of faiths or a, a plurality of uh, theistic conceptions of the good. If, if you're asking me, my, my, my own particular uh, position would be that um, people who call themselves atheists and people who call themselves religious or theists all ought to be treated exactly the same, and that there ought to be, I think I would part from both um, Marcy and Chris on this, that I, I don't think there ought to be any exemptions for religion or religious. In what I was trying to say was that, um, and the reason for that is that I don't think um, that one can make a, uh, a distinction between the two. Um, naturally, of course, and, and as your question uh, reveals, um, we're caught in a political rhetoric about religion that um, that doesn't do that. So um, the atheist 
um, doesn't want to be called religious, and I understand that, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to um, signify the atheists in this way, and, I, and I'm taking the liberty of speaking a bit as a sociologist here, um, and maybe as a future, futurist, too. I mean, I, I think um, that an acknowledgement that relig religion um, is, is something that's persistent throughout human history and culture, as far as we know, um, can be a capacious enough con uh, uh, concept to include people who have principled or unprincipled rejections of all existing religious institutions, ideas, etc. Um, I don't know if, if you'll accept that, but um, but that's that's where I would come out on this. I, I, I don't think. I don't think Winnie and I really disagree about the uh, kind of prescriptive content of our answers to your uh, uh, questions. So I also agree that that um, atheistic or non-religious uh, uh, moral commitments ought to be treated with the same respect as religious commitments. So our, our principle of equal membership, in my view, is, and we elaborate it this way, very protective of uh, non-religious uh, commitments. Uh, the principle is that no member of the political community ought to be devalued on the basis of the spiritual foundations of their important commitments and projects. If somebody is treated worse because they say, look, the, the foundations of my projects and commitments is not a religious foundation, and the state says, all right, we'll treat you worse then, as the state tried to do, for example, with regard to conscientious objectors in the 1960s and as the court refused to let it do, that's a way of violating uh, this principle. If the state in, on the Establishment Clause uh, side embraces religion and prefers it over non-religion, that is a way of, uh, of violating that principle. And it violates that principle not because uh, atheism is in fact a form of religion. I really think to say that would be to um, uh, condescend to the claims of the atheist to whom it is extremely important uh, that their view is uh, not a religious view. That's, that is what the court actually said in the conscientious objector case. They said, well, your, your atheism is like a religion, but the conscientious objector in question found it quite important that it wasn't a religious uh, view. I think the right way to protect this is on the ground that's saying that your moral commitments are more important than a moral commitment with, with otherwise identical content uh, if your commitment is a religious one, and less important if it's not religious, is a violation of this principle. So the view is, is uh, forthrightly and adamantly protective of uh, non-religious conviction. And yet, you would, would you allow the Newark police officer who just didn't want to shave to make the same argument that he deserved equal um, protection with the guy with folliculitis. If, if, if he just doesn't want to shave, no, because I, don't, I, I actually don't think that's the case of the person who is asserting a serious commitment. So the, the idea that you have to treat different, that there are commitments which are not religious, which are as serious as religious commitments, doesn't entail that all commitments are as serious as religious commitments. So, so I would just wanted to clarify that we had this distinction. I don't think you can uh, discriminate against people in our country who are not serious. I don't know what that means, well, <laughs> frankly. I, I think the problem is that we're, I mean, we're, we're depending on a notion of uh, uh, religion being equated with belief, and there are plenty of people who don't believe what they do, they just do. Um, and that's why I think it, it's not problematic to call atheism a religion if we define religion as belief, because atheists believe as fervently that there is no God as a theist believes that there is. Uh, I don't know that they have a lock on the truth. Um, the uh, Torcaso decision, I think, and the, the famous or infamous footnote 11 in Torcaso is probably instructive here. It seems to me that what the court was saying there was not that atheism, that 
that non-religion was protected by the First Amendment, but that atheism was a religion like all the ones listed in footnote 11. Um, but I, I think it goes back to something that, that Winnie said earlier about religion being uh, bodies in movement and not just what goes on between your ears that matters. And that's really where the government is interested. They don't care what you think. It's what you do. Um, so if we define religion that way, I mean, obviously there are beliefs connected. I don't want to shave, right? But that's not quite the same as somebody, even in a secular context, who wants to have mutton chops or, you know, a goatee or what they call it, a soul patch or, you know, whatever, um, because of uh, some sense of who they are. Uh, it's different from laziness on my part. Uh, Let me just make three quick points because I know we want to get some other questions. But first, non-believers can ask for any exemptions they want. The only debate is whether religious exemptions are mandatory, right? And if religious exemptions are not mandatory, they're a matter of public policy created by the legislature, then the non-religious reasons come in with the religious reasons. So if the atheist doesn't want a law because they don't want to have to have sidewalks in front of their house, they go in and make their policy arguments. Uh, so I don't, I don't see that as quite the problem that maybe my co-panelists do. Um, with respect to atheist self-perspective, uh, they tell me I was the first believer ever asked to address the American atheists. And the first question I got was, do you think we should decide we're a religion? <laughs> quite seriously. Because, of, you know, we think we might get more exemptions because religion does better in the country. Not necessarily legally, but it just does better. Everybody likes religion better than non-religion. Uh, and it's something they're considering very seriously. They also would like for their uh, main structures to get tax-exempt status. Um, so they're not, not all of them are adverse to being a religion. Some of them are actually talking about being the a-religion religion. So, uh, you know, so, so they are actually, you know, part of the culture in this. And finally, there's no question that the most important element of the entire Constitution for atheists is the disestablishment clause. And they know that, and that's why they're litigating it like crazy all over the place. Let's bring the microphone around. Um, maybe this uh, young woman. And I think this will be the last question, unless it's a very brief question. <laughs> or briefly answered question. I think it's pretty brief. Um, so, Chris, when you were talking about the, the Newark example and the peyote example, um, I found myself, found myself wondering whether the equal regard principle is really a, a way of identifying animus. And I wonder whether thinking of it in those terms might help with some of the hard cases. So for instance, the reason that not granting an exemption to somebody who just doesn't feel like shaving or to somebody who just wants to finish their dissertation is that not granting them the exemption is not, doesn't reflect animus in the way that not granting exemptions to other groups does reflect animus. So does thinking in terms of animus help with some of the hard cases? Um, I guess that, that's the question. I, I think it does, depending on what you, exactly what you mean by um, animus. That is, as I said uh, in my remarks earlier, uh, e equal regard is about the stance of the state rather than about the weight of the interest. That is, is it showing the right kind of respect for the uh, person? Now, I, I don't think it's just about hostility. Sometimes animus is interpreted to mean a kind of hostility where uh, the Newark police officers wouldn't be entitled to an exemption unless there was some showing that Newark had really done this, uh, not out of uh, mere neglect, but actually out of hostility uh, towards someone. Then I don't think it's uh, helpful. But if you mean it in a broader um, uh, way, where it means that this interest is being disrespected by virtue of 
uh, the spiritual foundations that it has, then I do think it's helpful. I think it's the crux of the issue. Um, I know there are more questions, and I think there are probably a, a few minutes uh, after we formally adjourn when you can come up and uh, ask those questions uh, before our panelists have to be rushed off to dinner. Uh, let's thank the panelists again. <laughs>